All right, Joe Barton, how you doing? I'm doing all right, Rob. How are you? Are you surviving the apocalypse? Oh, you know it. Um, this is a weird. This is a weird time. Is, is this the biggest historic event you've ever lived through? I think so. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I uh, yeah. I this is this is a, a pretty rare rare thing that we're witnessing. Like, it was oh, funny because yeah. I, I went. I do the tours at Ellis at the hospitals there. And there was a lady, like, uh, it was, like, a couple months ago, and she, like, casually mentioned, like, yeah, we're due for another pandemic. It usually happens about every hundred years. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> what a coincidence. Like, <laughs> uh, like clockwork. Yeah. But anyway, so uh, what, uh, what, what is this episode about, though? Um, this episode is about uh, John Brown. Uh, it's a good take your mind off everything that's going on. John Brown, um, did you just make that name up, Rob? That sounds. I did. Like I did. Uh, yeah, sorry, was it uh, James Smith? James Smith. <laughs> John. John Smith. I mean, that was, we talked about John Smith. John, that also sounds like a fake. Name. I know. We, we history is full of a lot of generic sounding people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, John Brown. He. Uh, Famously, infamously, uh, led the raid on Harper's Ferry, uh, Virginia, in 1859. Some would say that started the Civil War. Some, some might say that. Some might say you don't get a civil war without John Brown. Uh, so we're going to talk about him today and all the things he did in life that led up to Harper's Ferry. <laughs> That's awesome. And it's a good episode. Uh, it's one of my favorites so far. Um, do you anything? Uh, um, anything that's gonna? What do you think we're gonna do for our next episode? Uh, we're, we're gonna we're gonna do a well. I think we're gonna do a coronavirus thing, like uh, just a, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna record. We're gonna do something interesting with that. Uh, we'll talk about coronavirus and like yeah, what kind of historical context will that have? Um, and then after that, I'm not sure. I'm I have like a couple ideas, but we'll we'll think of something else after that. But uh, all right. But yeah, any any plugs right now, Rob? <laughs> yeah, I got a show coming up uh, <laughs> next year. Next, <laughs> I was gonna say we. I do. I did make a Twitter page, so we do have a Twitter now. It's at oh shit at excuse me history on Twitter. Uh, so oh man, we'll, all right. We'll tweet some jokes from there, and also all future updates with the podcast. So follow us at excuse Heck me yeah. history, and if you're not liking us on Facebook, do that too. Awesome. All right, cool. Uh, it's a great episode. Uh, get into it. We are recording, Joe Barton. Hey, Rodrigo. How's it going, Joe? Oh, it's going all right. Um, what do you want to talk about? Ikumi history. What are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about John Brown. John Brown. John Brown. His, the man of many, many things. His, uh, you know, his body lies moldering in a grave, oh. but his soul is marching on. So. And the saints come marching. That's the one. Yep, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> what? Uh, what did I'm curious. What? What was your familiar? Uh, how, how familiar with John Brown were you before this? What? Did, what do you know about? By God, Joe Joe Barton. I ain't never heard of him. Yeah, I never heard of him. I ain't never heard of the good John Brown. All right. Well, 
So Joe picked a uh, ooh, sorry, Joe picked a uh, a John a guy uh, for Black History Month. We decided to study um, something to do with slavery, check. Uh, mm-hmm. Something to do with uh, uh, writing immoral wrongs of America, check. Yep, uh, got that black guy. Uh, ooh, picked a picked a white guy. Yeah, picked a white guy for Black History Month. <laughs> Technically, the, it's coming out in. Yeah, it's coming out later. It's but, coming out later, but we, much later. we spent all of February reading about him. No, I, I, I did also. I wanted to to do. I, I wanted to do something s- s- slavery related, um, and I had th- thought about a few things. I, I, I thought about the Nat Turner Rebellion. We'll briefly talk about Nat Turner in this, but I don't know. John Brown seemed like he's a very fascinating figure, um, and but he of. It, it is weird to to talk about slavery in the context of. A white guy, sure. And uh, can, can I can I uh, be honest about something? Sure. I usually like I've kind of this this is a hear me out before you judge me too much on this. Oh, but I'm kind like I've, I have sometimes the feeling where I'm tired of talking about uh, like racial injustice, <laughs> which like I don't I don't mean it. Um, <laughs> I don't mean that in the way of that. I don't I disagree with anything. And that I disagree that it exists, but I find myself, and I think a lot of people find themselves kind of like tired of hearing about it all the time. Now, uh, why? So that's why this episode is so important, I think, because it really helped me see a perspective of how this is like, it's not just an experience. Um, of a thing that happened a hundred and fifty years ago, and people were complaining about it, and it's still like a just okay, I get it. It's like a cycle, but it's like no, like this is a a human vulnerability that we all have to uh, just treat each other poorly, to elevate ourselves in the terms of the other, and all that stuff that we we kind of know about it. But like just hearing, like reading about the story, I really felt a deep connection to it that mm-hmm. I've been missing from just like hearing like, oh, we need more black people in movies at the Oscars. Instead, and like this is kind of like, okay, what does that mean? Like what? Like where's the in, the the imbalance in our society when we have this like huge thing that's happened and like the we don't really contextualize how big and bad slavery was how the ripples of it are still being felt today and how that's that cycle has just never been put back on balance and besides that besides all that and like it's not even about like oh let's blame you know white movie like filmmakers at the oscars again it's not about that it's about like understanding that this like this evil bias that we have to elevate ourselves at the expense of someone that else um, in like a sense of strength and security and rationalizing in all those ways, like that's something that exists within all of us and it can come back uh, all the time and in small ways or big ways. And then reading about this, I I really felt like I understood it in a way that I hadn't before. Yeah. And to comment on kind of part of what you just said, like, yeah, the, I understand like representation is an important thing, but also if if more black directors get nominated at the Oscars, there are still systemic problems with racism. There are still like so many greater problems that won't be solved just by getting a few more black people nominated. Yes. Um, And and there's nothing wrong with like treating symptoms of this in society. But like what I'm saying is like, there's, there is a deep, 
you know, flaw that we all have that we, mm-hmm. and, and maybe it's not even flaw. It's just part of our biology that we want to, um, we're going to, we're going to other people, we're going to, we're going to elevate ourselves by and, and gain security by, uh, deescalating someone else or whatever. Or I don't know how to put it smarter, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like it's, it's, it's a, it's a sense of, uh, we, we, we gain something from, um, from hurting others. We'll, we'll, we'll shorten this down, but <laughs> sure. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's definitely a, it's a, it's a complicated issue. No, but I think the thing that's interesting about Brown is that he was not, he was a man of action. And I think that's the, the thing about his whole story. Um, and you know, there were a ton of people in the time period, um, who were saying, what time period is this? We're talking about the the mid nineteenth century. Uh, he's born. That in, means the eighteen zero. That's eighteen hundreds. Yeah, I don't know. Some people get confused by that, <laughs> but yeah, the eighteen hundreds. He's born in the year eighteen hundred, and he dies in eighteen fifty nine. Uh, but during that time, you know, there were a, a ton of people were against slavery. Uh, they did. They a lot of people thought it was a, a moral problem, but Kinda. very. Kinda like in that way of like you know in the in the back of your mind you realize oh that is wrong but I'm not going to actually do anything about it for various reasons one it's uh, what can an individual do um, and also I mean there I mean a lot of, there were a lot of legal issues and and all sorts of stuff well, but yeah, Brown but- Brown was the person who. Uh, more than any other person of his era was like this is an evil this is the the greatest evil. And, and, and is is that where we want to start? Do we want to paint like what what um, what slavery was in eighteen hundred? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. So, I mean, so we talked about in the, the our first episode, the Jefferson episode. We talked a little bit. Of, I mean, we went into slavery a little bit. Um, and in Jefferson's era, you know, there was this slavery had, was not as entrenched when he was. Uh, during like the founding of America, and even up until his presidency, which is like he's president when um, Brown is born, it, slavery was not that in, as entrenched then as it would be later in the 1800s. Um, and it, slavery was becoming more profitable as the years went on. It's because like the cotton gin. So yeah. So originally, slaves, you know, it was they were a big part of you know growing tobacco and rice and sugar and even cotton in the earlier years. But it was in with the invention of the cotton gin that made cotton much more profitable and you needed more laborers to be able to pick the cotton. You know, from it was something like from 1850 to 1860, um, the price of cotton doubled uh, or the, the amount of uh, cotton exports doubled and also the, the, the value of an individual enslaved person doubled over that 10 year period, bef- uh, the 10 years before the Civil War. So slavery was becoming more profitable so yeah slavery was becoming more popular as the years went on and you know in the earlier 1800s there was that kind of belief that slavery might just kind of gradually die out like it was going to become obsolete and just die of natural causes um but then but i I mean so i mean just like the like just understanding what that what that actually meant it's like there's like people there's people who are being born into slavery which which we had talked about jefferson episode being a uh um, what's it called where you're born into like a the system chattel slavery slavery. you have people who are literally uh you know doing that their whole lives and then dying that is their entire life and and then you have these guys who are like you know progressive people at the time which is like jefferson or whatever and they're like yeah this is wrong but 
Eh. It's it's hard. Meh. Like yeah. I'm, I'm it's just I like I would do it, but it's just like it's just like it's it's not. I'm not comparing these two things, but it's like this. It's this. It comes from the same place where I'm like, yeah, like I think everything about the food industry is wrong. Like I don't want to see a like if I had an animal, like I wouldn't want to like uh, torture it and then shoot it in the head. Like I wouldn't. Like I have a dog that I love. <laughs> I wouldn't. Like I would literally die for that stupid fucking dog. <laughs> and you might uh, hear her later on the podcast. Might, <laughs> she's right here. Uh, <laughs> But like, and then it's like, but I'm going to eat a cheeseburger tonight. Like I'm going to, I still do it. Like I'll still do it. Like I know it's wrong, but it's just like that disconnect of like, um, yeah. So like we, you know, like if we were in that situation where we were on people, even like the, the most progressive minds of the time were still un- unable to like empathize. Oh completely. yeah, sure. And, and it was, it was just hard. And like for Jefferson. It's hard to eh. understand like, uh, but like we would. I, but it's I, like. I, yeah, I don't tort- want. It's like being tortured your whole life. It's <laughs> it's pretty. I, I would love to help you not be tortured your whole life, but it's super inconvenient yeah. for me I, to do that. Like, if you could just wait a little bit, like I, just wait like 150 years. <laughs> just wait. It's 150 it'll, years. It's gonna die ha- out. It's gonna happen. It's gonna die out. Just wait for Stop it. Stop complaining about it. It's 100. Just <laughs> just three or five generations. Yeah, and <laughs> but definitely you know anti. But the country became more polarized on slavery whereas before it there was kind of the general consensus that yes slavery is wrong but it's there yep. uh and then but but they got to the point where more southerners became defensive about it whereas jefferson thought that the younger generation would become more progressive and more intolerant of slavery it was the opposite because it becomes one it becomes a cultural thing because and and it has to because it's their economic uh like foundation right Mm -hmm. their contingents come in they relies on a lot of slaves unlike the north right so then they have that then um because of that they take a political stance and that anyone who's like against it is like they just they they um like basically label them like a pussy Right. Yeah. Uh, they go. Oh, yeah. You guys are like not m- m- strong enough to like you know have it be an economic powerhouse like we are, where we're you know like we're building empires like like previous empires did with slaves before that. If you're not able to man up and and take the collateral damage, you're a weak person. Yeah. Right. So that's the kind of framework that they put the North in, and then the North obviously entrenches back, and then becomes a political thing, right? Where it's sure. like who's so now we have these two different cultures. One of them, and now it's like, well, now we want. C- in the Senate, so that we who's, who's which culture is making the decisions? Yeah, um, and it just gives us a team to be on. And and it wasn't even in, in the the, the north because you know slavery was legal in every colony and every uh, all the original states except for Vermont. Vermont enters as a as a free state. <laughs> Bernie Sanders did that. Yes, he's all- <laughs> <laughs> that going was- all the way back, baby. Yeah, when he, he, could- <laughs> <laughs> when he was a senator back in 1796. Nice. Um, now, but, old enough. <laughs> but no, they, uh, you know, but the North gradually emancipated their slaves and basically by the 1830s it was eradicated from every state above the Mason-Dixon line. And but there became this the the small number of slave owning um, slaveholders in the South. They became known as the slave power, and it was like the southern oligarchy. And the North, Northerners believed that this is like a conspiracy. Like it is like a small group of wealthy wealthy slaveholders that control not only you know they, basically the whole government. They most of the early presidents were slaveholders. Most of them were from southern states. Um, mo- the early Congress was usually dominated by Southerners. The Supreme Court um, and the Democratic Party as a whole basically became like the a pro-slavery party yeah and then you have like these dumb fucks like like these guys who don't own slaves down there but they're just racist to shit because they 
like they're again they're part of that culture and they're like yeah. northerners are weak pussies and also and in, they buy into that and the, so the the and then there was the two like attitudes about labor in the south it was thought of as a bad thing to work like if yeah. you're a southerner if you're a gentleman you don't work and that kind of goes back to like the european like feudal system like you're mm-hmm. let you're a guy who owns land you don't work your feudal peasants do your work you, you sit on the end of the edge of a log over a lake and you just dangle your feet and you talk to your yeah, you just look you look Daisy in the eyes and you say I love you and I and I'm gonna be I want you to be my wife. I get back to work. Get. You sip on your mint julep and uh, <laughs> watch the uh, the fish jump in the lake and uh, hey, I, I told you to pick that cotton. <laughs> um, but no, it was it was literally thought of as like it was you were a not a true gentleman if you worked for a living in the south yeah whereas in the north it became labor and like making your own living and owning your own business or owning your own and working your own farm that became a virtue mm-hmm. and so there were like these two competing ideologies on work and they became more and more polarized and even like the southerners like particularly john Cal- john Cal- calhoun the senator from uh south carolina he like literally said you know slavery is a moral good like it makes the southern white <laughs> slaveholders better because we don't have to work and it makes the african slaves better because we took them from the dark jungles of africa and civilized them and anybody who doesn't own slaves hey maybe one day you could own slaves well, John Calhoun, ain't you a saint? You putting it that way? <laughs> you know that sounds about right to me, John Let's, C. Calhoun. <laughs> I can get on board with that. I don't own slaves, and you degrade my own labor. But I, I believe in what you're talking about. Um, but no, so this is what's happening in the 1800s. There's this growing divide over the issue of slavery. It was the d- dominant issue um, for most, basically everything from the 18 late 1820s up until the Civil War is the debate over slavery in various uh, fashions. And John Brown is basically that's when he's growing up. Yeah, um, he's so born in Connecticut. Let's talk about him now. So yeah, John Brown. He was born in Connecticut in 1800. Um, his uh, family had been in North America for a while. They were uh, one of his ancestors was probably on the Mayflower, and he kind of comes from this uh, New England Puritan background. Yeah, um, his father was a, a devout Calvinist. Uh, if you're not familiar with John Calvin or Calvinism, it's uh, basically like very strict Protestant Christianity, kind of like early early presbyterianism but a big part of their belief system is predestination yep either going or you ain't you're going or you ain't it's all determined beforehand you don't get a say in it and we're all sinners we're all we're all bad people and uh we're unworthy in the eyes of god and we need to devote all of our lives to serving god um and being as humble as possible uh and it sounds really lame (laughs) yeah i never understood that either because it's like well if the thing is that if God knows everything, and that's every like doctrine or uh, uh, not doctrine, but a uh, uh, denomination of Christianity is that God is sees all things, he's, so He knows he's who's going to heaven or not. So yes. isn't it isn't everyone predestined? But whatever they'll they argue this like moot point. Yes, this is a, a whole other a whole other thing. But um, but this is his background. His you know he's just come he's raised in this. Puritan setting. I mean, they've been in New England for a long time. Um, and his father 
but his father was also very anti-slavery. He was an abolitionist, um, and he was also somebody who really valued hard work. He had grown up fairly impoverished. Uh, his father had died very early, and that kind of also informs his religious beliefs. Yeah, and and like so, and so like again, like uh, there are a lot of abolitionists in the North at this time, but most of them are like just against the South's like politically opposed to the South. They mm-hmm. want to, and a culturally opposed. They don't want cheap labor coming up to the North, uh, to yeah. take their, like they want to work and they don't want like, they, they're basically like what the South is now with Mexicans. They're just like, they're going <laughs> to, the slaves are going to come up here and take our yeah, jobs. I mean, some, uh, some of the most, uh, racist anti-black laws happened in Northern states, like Oregon banned black Boston. people from entering Boston. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Boston. I mean, they, there, cause there was the just fear that, <laughs> I mean, go to like, I mean, even like even after the Civil War, when there was that, that was it, the great migration of uh, black people from southern the South into northern cities. I mean, there you saw a huge amount of racism. Yeah. And but there was, yeah, there was that fear that if even if if the free we don't want slavery, but we we want sl- these slaves to be freed, but stay where they are. Yeah. We don't want them coming and taking our jabs. Um, <laughs> so that's like an uh, always an issue. So yeah. So the, the North isn't like completely morally superior. No, no. And even like even among the so you know there's degrees to uh, these anti-slavery people. There's some who just are opposed to slavery as a political issue. Some are opposed to it as like a moral or religious issue. They think slavery is you know like a moral issue. It's kind problem. of wrong. I guess. I, it goes against my beliefs. But you know, but there, a but lot of those people makes... um, are also. I mean, they're all racist. Yeah. Like they're all they all think black people are even, inferior. E- even even John Brown, who is like remarkable for his time, he still is like I don't think they should marry. Like like that's like even he has a uh, a line sometimes. Yeah, he. Uh, but but I would say almost he's probably the the most least race documented least documented racist person of the 19th century <laughs> like he's he maybe was not against or he was maybe against miscegenation but he uh i mean he did believe that black people deserved equal political and social rights yes. which is something that almost no abolitionist maybe except like a handful believed in most of them even if they did free the slaves either they should stay in the south i mean but a lot of them like even you know going back to jefferson didn't believe that black people and white people could coexist peacefully yeah um anyway john brown is the coolest white guy john brown is the coolest white guy (laughs) so but he's born in 1800 he he, he's uh, in connecticut Uh, his family moves out to ohio um and they they a lot of people uh because it's called the connecticut western reserve and basically at one point part of the like connecticut territory or part of uh what is now ohio was actually part of connecticut it's really it's a weird like colonial territorial thing, but so a lot of these Connecticut people moved to Ohio cultural wastelands. Yes, and it's a lot of really boring white people yeah. in a flat place. Um, but so they move out there, and his the move was one of his first memories, and he was really enamored with the wilderness. Um, which is, it's funny to think of like Ohio as like this, <laughs> like at the time it's like the frontier. <laughs> so they're, they move out to, they move Yo, out you're there. in Cleveland, bro. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and while he's there, they see there's a lot of, um, a lot of Indian nations that are still exist, that still existed in Ohio in the time. And he was, uh, not only was he very friendly to black people, he was also very friendly to native Americans. He was really enamored with yeah. na- native culture, uh, and that would influence him as a youngin. Um, and growing up, John Brown was, uh, he was kind of a, a hyper child. Uh, he was kind of also, he was described as being like a habitual liar. 
which I, I think is kind of interesting. But yeah, that is interesting. He. Uh, he he kind of grows out of it, but his definitely his parents were were very strict. I mean, they're again very like strict religious Calvinists, and they definitely uh, practice corporal punishment. Uh, so they kind of beat the the lion out of him. Yep. He eventually became a, a moral upright person, uh, and like many children growing up on the frontier, um, you know, schooling was not. Uh, a regular thing like he did attend school but he did spend a lot of his time working mm-hmm. um his father um was like a very like just devoted to work like yep. i'm going to spend my life trying to bring myself out of poverty um and his father had worked done a, a lot of various jobs like early in his, owen brown his father when he was younger i think one of the funniest jobs he had was he was like a traveling tinkerer so he would like go door to door and offer to fix stuff Nice. So he would like knock on your door and he's like, "Hey, you got any uh, got any chairs that need a little fixing? I can fix that table up for you. You get nice all uneven for you." Well, and so he would do that. But eventually, became, now that you mention it, you're a bit crooked. <laughs> I put a glass of wine on the other day. Half of them spilled over, and I can only now I can only drink half a glass at a time. Well, I can fix that for you. Oh God! But he, go uh, back to my alcoholic ways. <laughs> so he became uh, eventually becomes a tanner. He makes leather, uh, like from New Jersey. Oh, oh, that for leather. Gotcha. <laughs> I was about to say, like he op- he, he opened up the first tanning booth, Jim, Jim Tanner Laundry. <laughs> but he, um, uh, one uh, w- w- little coincidence wa- was the father of Ulysses S. Grant, Jesse Grant, worked for Owen Brown. Uh, eventually, Jesse Grant he he became a tanner, uh, but he. He often talked about meeting John Brown when he was uh, he was a couple. Brown was a couple years younger than Grant's father was, but he always he's talked about he was a man of great purity and character, high moral and physical courage, uh, but a fanatic and an extremist in everything he advocated, uh, which I, th- I think is a, is a very good description of Brown. <laughs> <laughs> he nailed it. He nailed, nailed it. it. <laughs> nailed it. Um, but yeah, so they live in you know this kind of rough existence on the frontier of Ohio. Um, he. His uh, let's see, one, a big influence or big thing that shaped his early life was the War of eighteen twelve. Um, his father drove cattle for the uh, the U.S. military, uh, and that gave Brown both a hatred of slavery and the military. He saw the military as very, uh, very cruel and regimented, and he never wanted to be a part of that life. Uh, but he also saw a lot of uh, slaves being used, both in the military and just people owning slaves out on the frontier, and was just very appalled by what he saw there was like a particular instance where he saw a, a, a boy being abused by his master and he i mean his father again was an abolitionist but brown kind of developed his own hatred of it uh and again his his hatred of slavery i think is unusual it's like it is very strong yeah i think i think i think like one thing uh I, like i would i would argue that um he probably had some uh like the empathy part of his brain was bigger. Like if they put him in an MRI, yeah. like he would have probably like because one time he like lost a squirrel and he cried about it. Yeah, he, like, he, had, a, he, he had a squirrel as a pet. He quote went into mourning. Like that was like how he felt. Um, and so he was just like that. Well, it was a really nice squirrel. It wasn't a nice girl. We lost Chucky today. No more, no more Chucky. Oh God. We're, we're, hey. he, he I'm, I'm, I'm going to, every time I, I find a pile of acorns, I just think of Chuck. I just can't stop crying. <laughs> but uh, no, he was def- definitely, yeah, there there was, I bet, yeah, I bet if you did do like a brain scan, there's you would notice like something, the wiring in his brain made him more empathetic than yeah. most people. Um but uh, yeah, so he he did experience like kind of a religious conversion as a teenager. 
and for a while he wanted to become a preacher. Uh, he moved back east uh, when he was a teenager to go to like divinity school. Eventually he ran out of money and got sick and he had to come back. Uh, and so he basically just went to work in his father's tannery. Uh, and then eventually he started his own business uh, with one of his brothers. Uh, and basically when he becomes an adult, he's just working as a tanner. Uh, in Ohio, and he was he was described uh, at the age of eighteen. He was five foot ten. He was lean, striking facial features, a sharp jaw, in- hollow cheeks, thick dark brushback hair, and distinctive blue gray eyes. And he was dressed neatly and plainly. He looked like he was on uh, like he looks like he's on meth. Like in the pictures, he I saw? always yeah. He always has these like really. His eyes are open. Yeah, like, they're very bugged out eyes. Yeah, his hair is like straight up. Part of that is just that no one bathed back then. Or, yeah, they or, didn't. They didn't do a lot of bathing. Um, also, you know, I think uh, we should have done like ten minutes ago. Uh, who's John Brown again? Like, what is he? <laughs> like, what does he do? Like, what are we talking about? What are we talking? Like, about? like all right. So John Brown. Uh, uh, the reason we're talking about John Brown is he. Leads the raid on Harper's Ferry. Oh, uh, spoiler alert! <laughs> but I just—I mean, we just talked about it. We're just talking about this guy, John Brown. From We're just talking about some guy named John Brown. Who knows who this guy is? No, I mean, if if you're not, if you don't know who John Brown is, yes, he is most famous for the raid on Harper's Ferry, which is like an inciting incident to the Civil War. Yes, that's why, and it's a very like literally would not have happened the same way the Civil War if that event did not happen. Uh, and he has a remarkable life and story besides that. Yes. Okay. So, part of which was making leather. Part of this was making leather. So he's, he's growing up and like John Brown, we're going to learn about him. Uh, and we're trying to understand like what made this guy who had a kind of moral integrity in a time, uh, w- that lacked a lot of that. So, uh, again, he's Connecticut, Ohio. His dad was religious and he was a pretty moral outstanding guy he, relative to the time. He was also very patriotic, which very is patriotic. He, he, he was not, I mean, and you know, you can principle. He's very principled. His political beliefs are kind of muddled, but he definitely, I mean, he, one of his great influences was the declaration of independence. You know, he does see that as being, um, like, you know, the, the principles that Jefferson lines out, you know, all men are created equal life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, all that. He does believe that to a T. Mm-hmm. He just believes that the United States has not lived up to that ideal. Um, he also was a, a good point. He is a good man. And he, he was also a believer in the golden rule, like do unto others. And like, those are, I think his two guiding principles are the golden rule and the declaration of independence. Nice. Um, uh, but yeah, definitely his religion was a huge influence on him. And, you know, he, you can, even you know his religion is you know he, uh, you know this we're talking about a time period where most people are more religious than they are today but he is extra religious yep. like he is very devout like you don't uh, you don't do anything on the Sabbath. Like your life is devoted to God. Uh, you read the Bible every day. You don't do frivolous things. Uh, and it, it comes with this you know strict belief and like calvinism predestination he's you're, a, you're he's a center he's a salt of the earth dude yeah he believes in hard work he's all like these fuck, like, I, and like, it's hard work serving god serving god he's yeah. not lazy at all he's yeah. like he reminds me of my dad he's like and it's like just not vain at all <laughs> he's like why would you he remi- does he buy not, a table did john Bra- build one out of cardboard like why like he reminds me of your dad so john brown didn't love you too <laughs> yes none of them uh <laughs> and but he's like a like john brown uh, like he just like lived in very uh, meager life, like just like any kind of vanity, all that stuff that is like uh, 
um, that deters us from just like elevating the self. He like really believed in, in like that he was like a servant or whatever. He yeah. would have shopped at Trader Joe's if he was alive. He wouldn't <laughs> go to Starbucks. He's like a yeah no yeah he was definitely a morally he would have fixed his guy. own chair. He wouldn't have paid a tinkerer to do it. Yeah, he would fix your chair for some money, but um, but yeah, but he he definitely he thought of himself kind of as a like Old Testament biblical, a biblical patriarch. Yeah. Like he saw himself in the vein of like Abraham or Moses. And of course his friends thought he was, called him a prig with not a, not a prick, a prig, a prig, which was like, this is like a moral douchebag. He's like, Oh, yeah. fucking. it's so, like if I walked in and he's like, uh, Hey, uh, Joe, uh, drinking alcohol is uh corrupting of the soul. And you're like, oh, all right, prig. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so he, he, he grows, I mean, when he goes in adulthood, he basically is like a farmer by day, he reads the Bible by night. That's little, like his, his life. He's a little Bible nerd, but, he's, Bible nerd. but he's, he's a principled dude. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, he, he practiced what he preached. I think he, he's definitely not a hypocrite in that, in that way. Um, but, in, but again, he's very anti-slavery. Both him and his father worked uh, on the Underground Railroad. Uh, they helped, you know, uh, freed slaves, escape to Canada. Uh, and again, he's just very morally opposed to the slavery and it just increases over the years uh and he uh, in the beginning kind of like a lot of the anti-slavery people he believed that um ending slavery could be achieved peacefully or yeah. could be achieved by political means uh but he will kind of become disillusioned to that as the years go on he gets frustrated he sees it's like uh, people are just you know uh letting the same old shit happen over and over again mm-hmm. Uh, nothing's going to change. Yeah. Um, and so now he, uh, you know, John Brown, but, you know, as a biblical, biblical patriarch, you need a wife, you know, wife and some kids. You got nope. to have some people to preach to. And we're going to learn that John Brown is going to make an excellent martyr. Yes. He's going to make an excellent man of principle. Yes. And he's going to make a fucking terrible husband. And terrible dad. <laughs> terrible dad. Um, he's going to be the worst. The funny thing is that they, even though I think he is kind of a, a not a great dad in he was a good dad in some respects, but in others, like he's not like a beat your wife. Don't, like, don't hate him like yeah. now for that. Like he's not like a beat your wife kind of dad. But he is a he's the kind of dad who will uh, get several of his sons killed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like even if it's a good reason, it's like still like yeah. Well, that's not a good dad. <laughs> so so he, he marries twice. His first wife, um, her name was Dianthe Lusk. Ooh, uh, he was Dianthe. Uh, Dianthe. Sexy Dianthe. Uh, Dirty Dianthe. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, definitely not dirty. Okay. She, uh, um, well, she's probably dirty. Well, like, dirty, like, like in a literal sense. In a, in a very literal, like, <laughs> she, Co- like okay. a, a nice coating of dirt all yeah. over. She was actually, so he hired a housekeeper when he was like 20, uh, which is kind of funny that like he actually, like, he does that multiple times. He hires housekeepers. That, that, um, yeah. Cause and he, that- that's the other thing too about this guy. It's like it's crazy. Like again, like to understand like the why he's so interesting and why like what he's doing is so radical. Is like he could have been a white guy in Connecticut living a pretty good life. Yeah, I if mean, he had just focused on other stuff. He could have had a good life. He could have, you know, supported slavery from or anti-slavery from a distance. Yeah, he didn't have to continually just blow up his life over and over again no he definitely makes some mistakes along the way that you know he did not need to make i mean definitely he comes across as a that was the learning process joe yeah you you don't you don't get a couple sons killed out in kansas once in a while how are you going to build up to the harper's ferry raid yeah you know he he was a moral he's a righteous guy 
and he <laughs> he learned from his mistakes. But uh, so yeah, he marries his uh, when he's he's twenty. His wife uh, he marries her when she's nineteen. She was described as quiet, devoutly religious, uh, suffered from bouts of mental illness, and described as humorless. But <laughs> pleasant and candid. Uh, what was it? What was it's, a love, it's a love poem. What yeah, I wrote, she I wrote it down. Shocking, uh, she, uh, he wrote this down. This is something he wrote down. He wrote about his, he took his, out. And this is uh, this is a time period where like you know you don't just write things down. You get He wrote this down for a uh, autobiography to a child who didn't need this information. He wrote down that she his first wife was remarkably plain but economical and industrious girl. And then she later suffered from, quote, strangeness. <laughs> <laughs> I just like, remarkably plain. Like, remarkably. You, you just walk uh, by, you're like, damn, that bitch is plain. <laughs> I, I, so plain, I had to remark on it. <laughs> That'd be the worst cat call ever. Hey, yo, girl, you're remarkably plain. Yeah. Um, but she was candid, so, like, she would... She would tell you shit that she would. Uh, those remarkably plain girls, uh, and this is what I also think is funny. She was a uh, so she did suffer from strangeness, uh, which is been- which is like a uh, so uh, your wife uh, she suffers from strangeness. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's gonna be a uh, four fifty for the visit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you go to uh, like a, a marriage what? counselor today and you're like, yeah, your wife is pretty strange. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll be uh, two two hundred dollars. Um, and then, uh, so he like uh, they had six kids. Uh, no, they had uh, eight kids. Eight kids, right? Some or wait, of, some, uh, seven kids. Sorry. Yeah, some of them die. Um, yeah. So in his lifetime, he has twenty children. Jesus. Um, only eight of them lived to adulthood, and only six of them outlived him. And then uh, he's, and then, and then she dies at like thirty-one or something like that. Yeah. And uh, her last words, her last words were "Farewell, Earth," which. <laughs> Which is the first thing like you learn how to program in JavaScript. <laughs> but like imagine that. Like imagine just being like a and she's like, Hey, what did what did she just <laughs> Farewell? Did she just say uh, farewell Earth? <laughs> and you're like, Oh no, Dad, I, I she said farewell John. <laughs> so I, I swear she Free said, Earth. Farewell Earth. What the fuck? <laughs> All right, I guess she's dead now. Farewell. <laughs> um but well, well, it was funny. One of the, the things they always talk, or some of his children and other people also mentioned about him. He was very, even though he was like this like fatherly guy, he still was like he. he they describe him as being kind of womanly. Like he was w- willing to do. Well, he like cry, he's work. crying all the time. He for cries a all squirrel the time. Dies. Cries for squirrels. He does women's work. Like he he cooked. <laughs> like he, like everyone thought that was strange yeah. that he like cooked and did house cleaning. And while his wife was like suffering from mental illness and dying, like he's. Like taking care of the kids and like doing all these like pussy like women stuff, um, but he uh, uh, unlike but, Joe, I think uh, the stuff women do is not pussy. Okay, well unless unless you're empowered by your pussy, yeah. then then all more power there to you your go. pussy. Either way, if you if you want power to the pussy or don't want you know anyway. however, however you want it, we'll get out of these waters. Um, so all right, so let's talk about like just so business wise, he's like he fails his whole life. Just kind of skim over like what his business. Yeah, stuff I mean, is. so he starts out as a tanner, and he's like, and the thing is, he's like pretty good at what he does. Like he's not, like, he's, he's a good trades worker. He's not a good entrepreneur. Yeah, Entrepren- he, he's good. He's a skilled person, and also just because like he's so devoted to work, like he gets good at the things he does. He's like, like showing up to work forty five minutes. He's that coworker. You're yeah, like, God damn. Well, he so he. We well, don't have to be here, John, until eight. He like uh, when you come in forty five minutes early, it makes us look like we're. 
bad employees. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he's the guy who's like five minutes is uh, five minutes early is on time. On time is late. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely said that. You got time to lean. You got time to clean. <laughs> but he, um, no, his like he owned his own tannery at one point, and he like he punished people. Like he was a very like early, especially earlier in his life. He like he punished his children a lot. He would punish his work. Like he thought his workers in his tannery were like his children. And like one time, one of his workers stole a piece of leather. And then for punishment, he told everyone else in the tannery, you can't speak to this guy for an entire month. (laughs) And I'm like, God damn, John, like, (laughs) just like give him a write up or something. (laughs) He also would like uh, coaching. He'd also like like if he would like whip his kid, he would like whip himself, too. Yeah, he uh, he was whipping his, uh, his oldest son, John Jr., he, he whips him a couple of times, and then he hands him the whip, and he goes, all right, now me. <laughs> uh, so, no, he like he practiced what he preached. Uh, but oh, no, he's into some kinky shit. No, he, he's, he wasn't. Yeah. No. Who knows? But he, uh, yeah, so he eventually he moves to Pennsylvania. He starts, uh, he's like a, a sheep herder. Goddamn sheep herders. Uh, but he was a good judge of wool. Uh, he knew the quality of wool. But, again, you Gotta just, run your fingers through it. Gotta run your fingers through it. Got then you know. Not, got to smell it, put it in between your teeth. Is that what you do? I don't know. Oh, okay. That's what you use gold. You put it in between your teeth. Well, wool's going to get all stuck in there. <laughs> You're going to have a mouthful of wool. Well, it's just like floss. Look like you have a beard growing yeah, from yeah, the inside. Just flossing with some, some wool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he was, no, he was good at that as well. Uh, he was like a surveyor. He worked as like a postmaster. But just uh, his problem eventually is he becomes a, a land speculator. And he starts buying like all this land in Ohio that just does not... That just goes undeveloped, and it's the kind of thing. If he had, if he had the money, or if he had the time to wait on like this land to become valuable, he probably would have become very rich. Yeah. But the problem was he was just borrowing money to buy land that then was just not valuable. And he just he just was like, you you got to like take risk, and uh, you have to believe in yourself. And yeah. he did, and he like, took way too much risk. Yeah. Like, uh, and then failed, and, and he did and- that all. And I think, like, you know, his father was always, like, this, you know, hardworking guy, and I think he took that, but I think he, he tries to do too much. Like, he, although he is, like, about the work and all that, he is trying to to make money and, uh, like, set up his family for success. But he, he's just not somebody who can succeed in that, like, capitalist economy, like, that growing, like, you need good business sense, you need capital, you need to have, like, shrewdness, and he does not have any of that. He is, like, He's almost like too morally upright and honest to be a good businessman. Um, like there was like it, like he would if he made a piece of leather that was inferior, he wouldn't sell it to a customer. Uh, or he like oftentimes the wool that he was selling he valued too highly, and then people wouldn't buy it. And so it's like he just doesn't know like how to like yep. like act as a businessman. These people don't know fucking goodwill if it hit him in the goddamn head. That's uh, true. <laughs> but he um. All right, so yeah, his wife dies. You want cheap, you pay for cheap. <laughs> but yeah, he uh, he just he keeps borrowing money, and like like I I, I think you know he's funny because he he loves Benjamin Franklin. Like Franklin's one of his idols, but I almost think he's more Jeffersonian. Like he's he's always like borrowing money mm-hmm. and then paying back creditors with borrowed money, and he's just like always a good plan. By the way, always a good plan. Just keep bouncing those checks, keep p- passing it further down the road. Um, and he's just doing that until, I mean, he eventually ends up like thousands of dollars in debt. Um, uh, at one point he decides to start a kind of like a co-op, uh, for selling wool. So he would like buy wool 
from farmers or sheep herders in the Midwest. And then he bought like a warehouse in, in Springfield, Massachusetts, and he would bring the wool there and then sell it to like sell it there. Uh, but he just was not a good salesman. And like people yeah. like he, he would value the wool too highly and they wouldn't buy the nice wool. And then like the bad wool, they would just buy really cheaply. So he was just losing money on like everything. And the funny thing is like people trusted him though. Like he, he was partially cause he was like good at what he did. Like he was a good judge of wool uh-huh. and he was so honest and he just, it will, it's just that thing like in, in like a, an art form, right? Like if you have a, a comedian, like half of their success is that they believe so much in themselves that you're like, Oh, like, you like they must be good. I think he had he had that like confidence of like like kind of an idiot who like believes in himself. Yeah, and like people saw that and they're like, okay, I can get behind this yeah. guy. And there was like there was one guy in particular who like loaned him like a ton of money to start this like wool business in Massachusetts, and um, it just went horribly. Like he he couldn't sell the wool, and then eventually he went to England and tried to like sell wool there and, and lost, lost a bunch dollars. of money. Uh, yeah, he it was like forty thousand dollars was adjusted for inflation is a million like dollars today. So like I mean it's insane like how much money he is losing. Um, but so okay, so then let's so that, let's 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 move on to like some of the the actual war stuff that he did. So well, while while all this is happening, you know, again, slavery is like it's always in the background. Yeah, like he's living his life, but like you know, all these uh, issues or like events that are happening in the world, uh, he sees what's happening. Yeah, um, and a big thing was so the first real major slave legislation that happens in the eighteen hundreds. Um, was the the Missouri Crop Compromise. Uh-huh. That's 1828. And basically what happened was Missouri enters the United States as a slave state, but everything north of Missouri's southern border would then be a free state. Um, and then everything south of Missouri could be a slave state. And again, there, this is like more of a big deal for like political like seats in the in like in Congress, yeah. That's so what like, they're kind of caring more about. It's not like it's not like the free states are going. Oh no, we like another place for slavery. Morally, they're like, oh no, they have another state and another two more senators yeah, and all that stuff. Exactly. So it's going to lead to an increase in power for the southern governments. But the slave states also re- realize that at that point that that limits the number of states that we can add in as slave states. So we have to expand, and that's going to cause the Mexican War, which is in the 1840s, mm-hmm. and we basically. We went to war with Mexico so we could gain control over, like, Texas up to the Rio Grande, Arizona, New Mexico, and California. And that's going to cause a whole lot of problems. But uh, a lot of people believe, like, the Mexican War was, like, a conspiracy to expand slavery. Um, and the, the president was, like, a slaveholder at the time. So, like, there was kind of, like, an understandable, like, fear of that. But basically, like, you know, the Missouri Compromise and just to first, let you know, like, how crazy these dudes were back then. Like, they wanted to, like capture like cuba and like bring slavery to cuba oh, like, they like well eventually they yeah they were like we're gonna take cuba we're gonna go into mexico brazil like brazil is was the largest slave power yeah in the western hemisphere so like they're hoping to create like this grand like global southern like slave empire. they want yeah they want an empire and yeah. and so there was like i think an understandable like fear among northerners that there is like this conspiracy but basically you know they're the north doesn't know how to stop it so they just keep compromising there's like the missouri compromises first and they just keep kicking it down the road eventually um it gets to the 1850s uh and then there's the, co- the compromise of 1850 uh which leads to the fugitive slave law uh which basically meant that any 
fugitive, any slave who had escaped from slavery and was living in the North could be arrested and transported back into slavery. And that's something that really pissed off a lot of the um, Northerners, and this, but the abolitionists. And John Brown saw this as like this great evil. And he, I mean, there were people, there were a, a few particular cases of people who were like uh, in Boston or other Northern cities who were captured and then sent back into slavery. Uh, and then the other real notable legislation was the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which was in 1854, and basically that nullified the Missouri Compromise. So that even the compromises that the North had made, they're now like going back on. Mm-hmm. And what they agreed to for the Missouri, uh, with Kansas-Nebraska Act is that the individual territories could decide, are they going to be free or are they going to be uh, slave states? Yeah. And <clears throat> Kansas will become kind of the battleground for slavery in the mid 1850s. Yeah. Uh, because basically what happens is they pass this the Kansas Nebraska Act and then a bunch of uh, pro slavery and anti slavery people all kind of pour into Kansas and they're going to fight it out there. Uh, and it become I mean it becomes a kind of like a precursor to the Civil War. It's usually referred to as bleeding Kansas. It's the only time people have ever poured into Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> They've been leaving ever since. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no the 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 Kansas uh, John Brown. Um, definitely he sees what's happening there. So he's living up in Massachusetts at the time. His wool business had failed and he's kind of contemplating his next move. And what ha- and while all of this is happening, I mean, I mean, there's all sorts of other events going on in the world. Um, there was a guy named Elijah P. Lovejoy. Um, he was a, uh, anti-slavery newspaper publisher. Uh, he was mur- murdered in Illinois by a pro-slavery mob, uh, basically because they were worried that, um, they that he was going to hurt like the 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 town he was living in. He was going to hurt the economy because like he was too anti-slavery, and he they tried to take his printing press, and then Lovejoy defended himself, and they shot him to death. Yeah, uh, like and that's happening, and people are like, yeah, that, and that's that, that's not the only incident of that. Like, yeah. there, there's plenty of that happening, and crazy. Yeah, they're, they're just, like people are just murdering each other. Um, there are all these. Um, uh, anti-slavery people who are, you know, underground railroad workers who are trying to free slaves and they're being arrested and like given life sentences for doing that. Uh, John Brown is like seeing all this happening yeah. and becoming like more and more pissed. He sees like the legislation that's being passed. And again, earlier in his life, he thought this could be solved peacefully. Now this is not the case. Like we have to like somehow through violent means like destroy slavery. Yep. And, um, there were a couple other notable events, and probably the most significant one was, I mean, there are slave rebellions um, going on all during this time period, and the most significant one was the Nat Turner Rebellion, and that was in 1839, and Nat Turner was a slave who uh, or, uh, organized a slave rebellion in southeastern Virginia, and it was initially successful. They killed a bunch of white slaveholders, and um, for a couple of days uh, were, like, wreaking havoc in Virginia. Eventually, they Virginia militia suppresses the rebellion. Nat Turner gets captured and is executed. But Brown saw that as an example of what could be success, something that could succeed. Sure. Um, that there are. And this is something like you, and, and we talked about that. This is what makes John Brown in- interesting is because like 
like in that Turner Rebellion, like I completely understand that. Like you're fighting for your yeah. own freedom. And, so. and and the one thing about Brown, like not to get too ahead of ourselves, but the raid on Harper's Ferry, it is really it's the only slave insurrection led by a white person. Like there's more than it was like something like 200 incidences of slave insurrections or rebellions in the South before the Civil War. All of them, except for the Harper's Ferry raid, were led by enslaved people. Yep. And so that's really, I think, one of the reasons why Brown stands out so much. Um, <clears throat> but definitely, Nat Turner was a huge influence on him. And there were a few other influences as well. But beginning around 1839, 1840, he starts to kind of develop a plan um, for, to invade the south and at first it's kind of like a vague idea but it'll kind of take shape um as he goes along and he but basically what happens is he's, he's planning like this invasion of the south he wants to take a, a group of people go into a southern state and cause some sort of rebellion yeah but he's interrupted by kansas um his sons move out to kansas and to decide to join the fight against slavery there and he will do the same thing um so he decides to move out there and basically becomes a militia leader um and the the one thing about it is the the southerners and the slaveholders they were always the most violent yeah. and they were way better at it they, than well, the northerners that's were. the thing like that's the the cultural difference is they're like strength is good and yeah. like all str- like they're it's like a genghis khan type like like bloodlust where they're like you got it like there's no like morality is weak you know or any kind of th- whatever like they they had the thing where the guy beat uh some like the senator on the the congress floor oh yeah the uh, uh uh brooks yeah he beat up charles sumner like he his, sumner was sitting at his desk the day before he had given this like anti-slavery yeah uh speech and he insulted that guy's uh cousin yeah he like called him out by name and then like brooks comes into the senate and then just takes out a cane and like beats him to nearly to death yeah and like that like that happens and like the south loses their shit they're like cheering like it's a fucking they think like, it's a awesome. boxing match like yeah. it was cra- it's crazy and like for and what i want to know is like where was this dude's boys <laughs> like listen i don't like violence i don't give a fuck if someone's gonna like where like, he's got other senators on the floor what were they doing like I don't know. Get in there, fucking knock this. Like, but let's. but the thing was, it was it, it the like Congress at that time was so violent. Like people were getting into fights like on the Senate and the House floor, and this was not like an unusual thing. Oh, then we need to elect someone jacked. We got yeah. <laughs> and and it kind of. I mean, I kind of wish Congress was like that today. Who did you? Who would you want to see fight? I mean. Definitely Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell's definitely yeah. I want to see him fight somebody. Ding, who, ding, who, ding. who on the other side? Who's gonna? Oh uh, man, I don't know. Uh, Amy Klobuchar. Oh yeah, she's got that that fucking uh, ice queen power. Ice queen power. She can fucking freeze him to death. Yeah. <laughs> no, but definitely like well, Mitch McConnell has has a flat has his special flap neck. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know he uh, I, he that can expand <laughs> and he can then make can, himself look more yeah threatening. He's, he's frightening from you know yeah. he's he's not actually gonna hurt you but he gives the appearance that he's bigger than he really <laughs> he is. inflates a sack with a, <laughs> uh, like a uh, uh, dinosaur in Jurassic Park. I'd love to see I'd love to see Bernie like beat up on some dudes too. I think he's got I feel it. like he's a little past his uh, beating up prime. I, I think I mean he he's too nice though. That's the thing. Like he's got that like he's anger. always been like a frail Jewish dude. Like, he's, he went, he, but he's like but he's like working class Jewish. He's not like intellectual yeah, yeah, Jewish. Yeah, he's yeah. like uh, he grew up in Brooklyn. He plays basketball. Yeah, he, right. he, he shoots hoops. He, I, he he's not like he's an athlete. I think there's some uh, 
get that one guy, the the guy with the the patch, the Crenshaw guy. Oh God, Crenshaw! That guy got a. Oh God. There's some military dudes in the in the Congress that could probably whoop ass. Oh yeah, like was it Tom Cotton, that motherfucker? Tom, he's gonna do it. Um, but no, in this time period, like guys are coming to Congress armed, like. <laughs> they, said, they, they, they said so why didn't someone shoot the dude who was beating the shit out of summer man i think it was like they, they were the only guys in the building at the time like everybody was at lunch or something <laughs> and he just beat the shit out of him but like the, the there was one quote that was like um every man came to congress armed and if you didn't have if, if you didn't have one pistol that just meant you had two pistols right. and the south and the southerners also love bowie knives they love carrying these like giant fucking knives that they're gonna gut these See, see like, like, with. like, I like. This is so fun to talk about, but it's like you, we cannot even. I can't even comprehend, and I'm so glad that I can't comprehend. Like, oh, yeah. what it would be like. It was a violent time, and we. It's we're soft now. We are soft, <laughs> but that's that's what we. I mean, we want strength enough to provide ourselves security for sure. But like, yeah, we want to be soft where we're not like hurting people just because we have a fucking disagreement, and our dumb animal brain has sure. to. Now, now I don't like what you're saying. <laughs> but um, but anyway, but this all kind of blo- like this anti or this battle between slavery, anti-slavery comes down to Kansas. You go to Kansas. The what ha- so in Kansas again, you know, it's on the Missouri border, and Missouri was a slave state. Missouri was not the biggest slave state. It was only like one out of every eight Missouri families owned slaves. Um, but the the uh, governor of Missouri was a slave owner and he or and he was like a very uh, like pro-slavery and then they had a senator uh, who like encouraged Missourians to invade Kansas and they they called these guys the border ruffians uh, they're ruffians they'll they'll rough you up oh. they'll ruffle some feathers uh, and then the pro the anti-slavery forces were known as Jayhawks which is where the the Kansas University that's their name today the Jayhawks oh, okay. um but they, and but most of the violence was perpetrated <clears throat> by the pro-slavery forces on <clears throat> anti-slavery forces. Like there, even I mean, this it's bleeding Kansas was not that bloody. Like if you compare it to the Civil War, it's no, nothing. It's it was nothing. Like yeah. Only like there's debates about how many people really died, but it was somewhere around a hundred people. This is all perception, and and, yeah. Har- and we'll learn about Harvard's Ferry too. It's like it's not so much like ex- the what actually is happening. It's, it's not it's death it's the, toll. Per- yeah. it's the perception. It and, is a perception. And but the it is a very it's a very personal war. It's yeah. like it's it's guy. It's you know you have towns that are forming like a, a yeah. bunch of free settlers will move in, form a town, and then the neighboring town is a bunch of like Missouri pro-slavery guys and then they go to each other's communities and murder each other. Yep. It's not like battles are happening. It's like raids will happen. They capture a guy, they lynch a guy or they, uh, they also, they call these guys bushwhackers and they would just out in like the middle of nowhere. They would just murder people. So it's like, it's a very, it's a guerrilla war. And then, and then, so what happens is like John Brown, like they, and his, and his family, they go in there and they start. They start attacking them. So mostly it's the, the the pro-slavery people doing most of the violence, right? Yeah. So they come in and they like they 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 start. They have a couple killings. Yeah. And the way they do it just seemed so funny to me. Not like like funny, but like they would do it like they were selling like Girl Scout cookies. Like they well, would, like knock on the door. Well, what happens? So like his sons move out there first, and they very quickly realize, oh, this is bad. So they like they tell their dad, like, hey, come here, but come armed. And they form a militia. And John Brown is like, all right, all these like you know pussy ass abolitionists aren't doing enough. We need to like take charge and actually do something. So he forms his own militia. And <clears throat> the what was it? The day after 
the uh, Charles Sumner was beat on the Senate floor. Um, he decides <laughs> to. Uh, it was that. It was that combined with the sack of Lawrence, the pro-slavery. Um, Settlers uh, burned down the town of Lawrence, Kansas, which was like the anti-slavery capital. Yeah, and Brown was not able to like get there in time, so he wants to seek revenge. So basically, him and his and his dudes, uh, it's like him, his sons, and a couple other guys. They basically one night go to this place called uh, Potawatomi, and they go door to door. And they, they're, just, they're just like, uh, hey, um, they're like, you guys, uh, what? They they, they go up to the house and they're like, oh god damn it. <laughs> Knock, 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 knock. And then the guy opens the door. Uh, yes, yes. Can I help you? Um, uh, hey, uh, are you uh, are you a pro-slavery guy? Uh, yeah, yes, I am. Okay, uh, you want to wanna come outside? <sighs> All right. Sorry, I got to... Sorry, um, honey, I'm... I got to go. Yep. Uh, we just want to have a chat with you outside. Yeah, I got to go with these people. They're, they have swords and... Uh, yeah, but... Yeah. And but, so- uh, but, but anti-slavery people don't hurt... A- pro-slavery people yeah so. they, they must be here just uh you know just say give me a nice scold in there they're not gonna do anything wrong i'll step outside i'll step outside and see what they're, oh they're hacking me to death with swords ah, yeah, what's happening? they were so bad at killing they were just like it was just uh they were just yeah they were just throwing swords well, at people and, well, well brown intentionally decided like so you know they decided to do this like revenge killing thing and he wants to like make a make a statement so instead of like just shooting guys they hack them to death with broadswords. nice but they go door to door they knock on a door they get a guy to come out they trick they usually they would trick them they're like hey we're uh i'm i'm john smith um i'm looking from for Jamestown? Yeah, yeah, from Jamestown, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for this other guy, and then the guy comes out, and then they take him hostage, and then they take him 100 yards away from his house, and then hack him to death with broadswords. Nice. And they did that multiple times. Uh, they would just go door-to-door, and, and eventually, I think in total, they killed six people. Um, and in fact, most of the deaths... Um, on the so like most of the deaths in bleeding Kansas were pro-slavery forces killing anti-slavery forces. Well, most of the... Uh, murders committed by anti-slavery forces against pro-slavery forces were committed by John Brown and his followers. And it's only six. It's only six. So it's like not like it's really which, not a lot. But they did com- they compared made, to how many they were killing. Yeah, they made uh, their mark there. But yeah, people. But then they get scared, and then so the whole thing after this is that they're like now like the an- the anti-slavery or the slavery people are like uh like some very taken aback by this they're put on their heels a little bit and then they're also like well they're they're like this is the first time that the pro or anti-slavery forces have like fought back and then the whole thing about like anti-slavery forces and you see like this is like again like you see this kind of thing from the people who say they have higher moral authority that is it's kind of like the batman um dilemma where it's like <laughs> the the one place you're not willing to go is the place you need to go to fight this thing right yeah. because but then if well, you the, go like, there you're sacrificing your moral uh, high ground exactly like yeah you you don't have that more th- moral authority anymore but if what they had been doing before wasn't working they were just getting murdered yes. and and the pro-slavery forces basically had taken control over the government of like the territory of Kansas. Yeah. Like they control, like it was, they had a, the territorial governor was pro slavery. Uh, they elected like a pro slavery Senate and their delegate to Congress was pro slavery. So the, the free staters were losing against the, like the slave staters. So they, John Brown was, um, I mean, what he did was pretty awful. Like you can, I mean, he, he basically just murders people like yeah. in their sleep yeah. for the most part. Um, but if he hadn't <laughs> done that, I mean, 
it's I mean, it's possible that Missouri, uh, you know, the Missourians keep doing what they're doing yeah. and what he and they don't and, and they come after him with a vengeance. They want like they want his blood. They're mad about it and they're not going, well, you know what? We did kill the like their people like there is there's no like there's no yeah. sense of like honor or, or like a repro- re- uh, reciprocity or whatever. It's just. Yeah. And, but they they kind of lay, him and his followers they 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 wash their swords in Potawatomi Creek and then they return back but they kind of lay low for a while uh, but eventually you know they go back to war with these guys they did fight a couple skirmishes uh, and then the, in one skirmish his um, uh, his two of his sons were captured by this guy named Henry Pate and his his oldest son John Jr was like tortured Oof. and like for the rest of his life suffered from like PTSD yeah, yeah, um, yeah you know. and he did not have a, a I mean he, li- he actually lived a fairly long life but he suffered from like uh, a lot of mental illness uh, from that torture that had happened um, that guy that captured his son John Brown later captured um, and this one little skirmish they had at the Battle of Blackjack. Um, eventually, uh, f- the Federal Army like forced him to give up the guy. Uh, so John Brown was like really pissed. He should have tortured him first. Should have tortured him first. You know, just get a little revenge. Um, but he. But again, he shows that these Free Staters they're capable of fighting back. Okay. Um, and then the violence. Uh, so this is happening in like 1855, and he he's the violence kind of peaks around like 1855, 1856. Um, eventually, um, the border ruffians march again into Kansas, um, and they'll fight another battle with John Brown. He, uh, he, there's this one battle, it's called the Battle of Osawatomie, um, and they, it was about 300 border ruffians, they enter the town of Osawatomie, and they kill another one of his sons, uh, it was, uh, his son Frederick Brown, and uh, he was like 16 years old, and they shoot him to death, and then Brown rallies his militia, they defend the town against the, the border ruffians, eventually they are forced to retreat, but again, it was a symbolic thing, he yep. defends, like, it was overwhelming forces. He defends the town. He's, he's also given the rank of captain. He's given the rank of captain. Did he, he earn that rank? And you might ask, what, did he go to West Point? Did he do ROTC like I did? No. <laughs> he just showed some initiative. Yeah. That's all he did, he was, which is bullshit, because when I show initiative, I get blamed with abuse of government funds. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, you got, they don't like that today. No. <laughs> they don't want free thinkers. <laughs> but Al- no, also, he would uh, call the South Africa... Oh, that's right. He did. He called it South Africa, and he meant it as like a the place that is crying out for freedom. Because that's oh. how that's how he kind of meant it. He wasn't it. being racist. Yeah, like you can't do that today. You can't just call that area of black people Africa. I think yeah. If he did that, we'd have to cancel John Brown. You can't. Can't. <laughs> can't. But um. But anyway, so eventually, so the that second he he, became, he got two nicknames out of Kansas. Osawatomie and Osawatomie. Yeah, Osawatomie <laughs> Brown. That was the positive nickname uh-huh. because the Battle of Osawatomie. It's where he showed his strength. But for people who didn't like him, they called him Potawatomie Brown. So he'll sounds like we're pulling hairs here. <laughs> What's the difference? But eventually the situation cools down. Um, uh, the the federal government tries to like put more authority in there, like try to like establish like order, like rule of law in the state. Um, and then John Brown kind of uses this as an opportunity to leave. He's like, "All right, I'm a wanted man, but I I don't want to die, so I'm going to get out of here." Okay, so he. Let- Let's yeah. Let's let, let's 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 fast forward this to the the Harper to plan at Harper's Ferry. So, yeah. So so basically, he spends the next couple of years like on a like a publicity tour because yeah. he's like he's like one of the most famous guys 
like uh, one of the most famous abolitionists now. Yeah, because he's like I, he's the guy who actually fought back. Yeah. like all these other guys have been like talking. they put him in a suit and he's like dripping. Like he like he's in a suit, but he's like got <laughs> dirt on his feet and he's like dragging yeah, yeah. through like carpets and shit he's through like New England. Broadsword with him. Henry David Thoreau is like oh this guy's this guy's interesting. I'll yeah, yeah. write a. a thing about him or I'm whatever gonna, I'm, gonna go, uh, I'm gonna go out in the woods frederick so. douglas meet he meets frederick douglas early on twice in uh well he, he two met, specific times yeah he met douglas the first time when he was living in springfield yeah um, and, and that was like a he like frederick douglas like was insulting his his house like he was trying to tell him about this plan to free africa or free like the what he called africa which was the south and uh like uh douglas was just like douglas, hey, this guy's has a shitty apartment this guy's got a shitty like he like wrote that down like that's what he took away from meeting john brown he had no like, comfortable furniture this guy who's like a former slave and he's trashing your apartment like yeah, that's yeah it was a bad he lived a spartan existence. spartan life yeah um, um but no he john again so going back you know so this is we're talking about 1856 now but going back for like 15 years john brown has been thinking about doing something yeah and now he's like i have the credibility i have you know the notoriety and i can use that to get people to give me money so I can plan this invasion of the South. Um, and he had a few inspirations. Uh, I mentioned before the Nat Turner Rebellion, all the other various American slave rebellions. He's also really inspired by the Haitian Revolution, uh, particularly Toussaint Louverture. Um, in the the Jamaica, there, when uh, right before the, uh, the British um, emancipated their slaves, uh, the Jamaican uh, British slaves like um, escaped into the mountains and like fought a guerrilla war. There were the, the Maroons. Um, there were a, a few other things like the Seminole Wars, which was uh, like a series of wars that took over like 30 years fought between like the United States government and the Seminole Indian tribe and also black freed black people who were living with the Seminole tribe. So he sees like there are examples of successful guerrilla wars fought against larger armies. Yeah. Um, and he, he does know, and there are historical examples of slaves uprising and fighting against their oppressors. Um, and then the other real major um, inspiration he had was um, uh, the the Peninsular War, which was uh, one of, part of the Napoleonic Wars when France um, takes control of Spain. Um, the Spanish and the Portuguese guerrillas fought against the French. And in fact, the word guerrilla comes, uh, guerrillo comes from uh, the Spanish guerrillas fighting the, uh, it, it, mean, it means little war, and it comes from the Peninsular War. And he saw that as an example of a a small small group of armed men, in particularly in mountains, fighting against a larger army, and they could be successful. Uh, and so he has all these examples of uh, of this happening, and he's like, okay, so we can do this as well. And so he decides, um, I want to invade the South. I want to start a slave insurrection, and I want to do it in a place that's in a kind of a mountainous region because that's where we can be successful. And so eventually he comes um, up, uh, he decides on Harper's Ferry as a target. Now Harper's Ferry, because it's in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley, is it? Is it? I mean, I, it is a very beautiful place. It is is beautiful. If you go, I've been there a couple of times. It is uh, very picturesque. It's like take um, a lady, go for a hike, get some waffles, watch the sunrise, cross the bridge, uh, walk between the Potomac and the mm. Shenandoah rivers. I can hear, I can hear the river just uh, babbling over the rocks right now. Yeah, the breeze blowing through the trees and the mountains. Birds oh, who's chirping. that? Is that a? Is that John Cook? John Cook. Oh, that's my friend John Cook. Oh, that's my friend John Cook. <laughs> hey, I'm John Cook. How's it going? Oh, hey, John Cook. You 
my favorite totally not a spy down here <laughs> yeah i'm just here you know just recently moved into this community oh that that's well i'm a friendly guy you know you know we're having a we're having a, a, a volleyball tournament this weekend well you you know i love volleyball i'll be there hell yeah uh, so, so he sends a, he sends a spy down. Yeah. So, well, just kind of before that. Yeah. So he, 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 the reason why he picks Harper's Ferry. So Harper's Ferry, it's in, at the time it was Virginia. Yeah. Today it's moder- it's West Virginia, but it's basically Ugh. where, uh, hey, <laughs> hey, West Virginia, it's a uh, country road. Take me home. All right. Uh, he, he picks it because there it's, it's a strategic location is at the confluence of the Potomac and the Shenandoah rivers and where Harper's Ferry sits, like the rivers fork on either side. Yeah. And if you follow eventually, if you follow the Potomac river, you get down to DC and, and the Chesapeake Bay. Um, but in eight, uh, during Washington's presidency, he decides on Harper's Ferry as the location for a federal arsenal. And at the time, it was one of the largest um, federal arsenals uh, in the United States, and they also produced several thousand um, weapons in the in the town each year. So it is a strategic location, and if you deciding, uh, they picked Harper's Ferry because they can use it as uh, to get arms. And we will raid the town, steal the weapons, and then and then and then hopefully uh, start and uh, have this black. Uh, uprising yes and then give arm arm all the 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 new recruits and then escape into the woods on the other side of the the mason dixon line yeah they would basically go into the allegheny mountains and then use the mountains as their fortification so they're going to raid the raid the ferry capture the arms use the arms to arm the freed slaves who would flock to them escape into the mountains and then fight a guerrilla war um, and they would do this until the South basically freed their slaves. Okay. And that's the plan. Um, and also Harper's Ferry, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a fairly important place. It's like a, a, a big transportation hub. There's like a, the CNO Canal is there. The Baltimore and Ohio Railroad go through the town. Uh, during the Civil War, it changed hands more than a dozen times. So it's a fairly strategic place. Um, and so he, he comes up with Harper's Ferry as the, as the target sometime around 1850. But all this time, like in the 1840s, 1850s, he's discussing it with people. He, he's kind of uh, cautious about who he talks about plans with openly. Uh, black people were the only people he would discuss it with freely. Because black people he knew were definitely more sympathetic to his plan. Yeah. Um, and were not going to like rat him out. Yeah. But he talks about it with Frederick Douglass. Um, Douglas was kind of skeptical of the plan. Like he thought also, he was one of those guys who thought slavery could be defeated peacefully. It didn't need to be yeah. like this violent thing, uh, but eventually he became and anyone a who actually, Brown and actually, anyone who actually heard like the logistics of the plan knows, like realizes that it's stupid. Well, yeah. So I mentioned Grant before when like in, in Grant's memoirs, when he's talking about his father and John Brown and he goes, uh, John Brown is like a righteous man, but he was a fanatic and he, and he's a crazy person because he, believe that less than 25 guys could overthrow slavery yeah um and how could like a, a sane person believe that but he did believe that like a group i mean i think he he could have done better than what he did no he he makes mistakes and we'll get to that but he believe he, he did believe that a group of like 25 to 50 well-armed men and well-trained men could overthrow slavery uh and and again there were successful examples of that happening before in history um and so he 
he's going to continue to develop the plans in the 1850s. Eventually, he meets a guy named Hugh Forbes, um, and Forbes was um, kind of like a, a soldier of fortune uh, who had fought uh, with Garibaldi uh, in the Italian Wars of Unification. So he has some kind of military experience, and he's very anti-slavery. So Brown recruits him to be uh, basically like his military advisor, and he's going to train uh, the people that he hires to do the raid. Um Forbes is kind of skeptical of Brown. Like he, he also wants to do like his idea was actually just to do like plantation raids. They would like go into plantations, take slaves into the North and they would do that until the South like capitulated. Mm -hmm. But he thought Brown's idea was kind of stupid. Um, and, but he's going to be mobile. You want to fight a guerrilla war? Gotta be mobile. It's true. Um, but he's going to spend the next couple of years basically just going on a publicity tour, trying to get wealthy guys to give him money. Uh, and he, he meets a couple of guys in particular who will become, uh, kind of like the, his, uh, the backers of his plan. Uh, they're usually referred to as the secret six. Uh, the first guy is a guy named Frank Sanborn. Uh, he was the secretary of the Massachusetts Kansas Commission, and he was basically responsible for sending money to free staters in Kansas to fight um, the uh, the pro slavery forces. And he was also very closely connected to the transcendentalist movement. Uh, but he'll connect uh, Brown with some other guys, uh, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, Theodore Parker. Uh, Higginson is the most like radical of all the guys who backed brown uh, yeah in fact he was all all the time that this is happening he's kind of frustrated that brown isn't doing things more quickly yeah whereas the other guys are a little more conservative uh he also met he tried to like sneak him out of jail too i think as yeah, a, yeah after he gets captured um but uh he also met william lloyd, lloyd garrison um, who was probably the most famous abolitionist in the North before the Civil War. Uh, he started a, a newspaper called The Liberator. Um, Sounds like a vibrator. It does sound like that it could uh, really stimulate you. Uh, but he, uh, Garrison, also was very, he was a pacifist, and he was skeptical of violence um, to be used against slavery. Uh, he met a guy named Samuel uh, G. Howe. He, was, uh, he had fought as a revolutionary in Greece and Poland. He eventually became a doctor. Um, and then he was a good friend with uh, George Stearns, uh, who was a wealthy factory owner. Uh, and Stearns would probably, he was the most, like, the biggest of his, uh, Brown's benefactors. He was mm -hmm. the most, most wealthy guy. And he gave Brown the most. He's the money. one, like, yeah, most psychologically invested. To, or, like, he's, like, he, he's, he's thinking about it the most and trying to, like, put the pieces together. Yeah. And isn't he the guy, isn't, it was, wasn't it Brown, or Stearns, wasn't it his kid that Brown wrote the, um, the yes. autobiography the autobiography yeah. <laughs> Uh, simply very simple and plain wife very simple and plain wife all right so let's let's let's, let's he also just... met charles sumner uh and he when he met charles sumner the guy got beaten in congress oh, he he know. saw he uh he he had the coat uh that he was wearing in his house and it was like covered in blood <laughs> and like he saw that as like a relic like, mm. a, like a biblical relic charles um, sumner i will avenge you He's go so he's going around all New England. He's doing like speaking uh, stuff. Yeah. He's trying to get people to. He's got like this really monotone voice. So he's like, "Cause say the very bad. And I think we can playing it. And like, no one's like really listening because he's not a good speaker. But people, like, the other guys are like, "Listen, like he knows what he's doing. Yeah, he was the Potawatomi dude. And and the, there were there, a number of the people he's like trying to get financial financial backing from are also very close with the transcendentalist movement. Particular, you know, guys like Thoreau and um, Emerson and I forget the other guy, but. 
but they they were also you know they were really important in promoting John Brown because they saw him as like because the transcendentalists were uh, anti-slavery but they were also very anti-government and they didn't like the you know the whole political process but they saw John Brown as a guy of action he's not like just a talker uh-huh. he's a guy who's like willing to actually go and do something to stop slavery so they became like early supporters of Brown uh, and then there's one other guy I just want to mention his name is Garrett Smith uh, and he was also another wealthy guy uh, but he was kind of like uh, a little standoffish uh, and he didn't want to promise him any money but he was like kind of like the idea and I think that's like kind of the thing about a lot of these guys is they like the idea that Br- Brown is promoting but they're just kind of like they don't know if it will work uh, and so Brown has to like convince them that like I can actually do this thing but he's he kind of uses his experience in Kansas as like a um example of how he can do it but uh all right so then they finally get all the people together yes. uh, or, or they, they, they uh he's building up all these people he's building them all the support he finally go he picks the harper's ferry uh he gets a bunch of people that are uh some of his sons some are uh, sl- uh just uh anti-slave supporters yeah some are uh freed slaves who want to fight for the cause yeah it was like three of his sons a, a bunch of guys he had met in kansas yeah. um eventually he, he goes up to uh canada to this like uh it was like, like some quakers yeah there's a couple quakers that joined him. whatever and then they go down to uh harper's ferry and they get a cabin in the woods yeah, so they they uh, he sends one guy down first, um, John Cook. We talked we were joking about John Cook earlier, but John Cook was basically the like the forerunner. He's sent there to uh, just a little him. happy spy. He's just a little happy spy. He, you know, he you uh, want me to go down? I'll go down there. Hell yeah! Yeah, yeah. Go down there, like scout out the situation, tell us like what you know the people are like, what the area is like, and then report. You know, when we get down there, you're going to be our eyes and ears in the ground. Yeah, Cook was a spy. He learned. Uh, he figured out the quintessential thing to being a great spy and that is have fun with it all yeah. right you just gotta have fun don't go down there stressing out about being captured and tortured and killed you gotta go down there and st- and 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 get to know people fall in love join the committee of uh of the of education have a family <laughs> yeah, start he, be on uh like help uh be on one the planning board for the fair that year join the pta yeah <laughs> you're have be the guy who sits over the tank of water and throws insults at people to and they throw the ball at the lever thing like, <laughs> be get in there have some fun with it be a spy but no literally he does he marries a woman she gets pregnant he's like a, a valued member of the community like he work he has a job (laughs) like he's just like a normal guy who just like you know i just like this place you know i just want to settle down have a family (laughs) i'm just having so much fun here sometimes i forget that i am being i'm part of an interaction (laughs) um but anyway, so while all this is happening, all the other guys that he recruited, they're training in Iowa uh, with that guy, Hugh Forbes. He's the, like their military advisor. But Hugh Forbes, um, about, about a, uh, in 1858, he decides to spoil the plans. Uh, he sends a bunch of letters um, to some prominent uh, abolitionists uh, and basically rats John Brown out. He's like, this guy is going to uh, invade the South. And that causes most of the the Secret Six backers to uh, want, except for Higginson, uh, to they wanted John Brown to delay the plan. They're like, hey, you know the the, the you know the heat's on us right now. We gotta like push it back a little bit. So Brown has he wanted to do it in 1858, but he's gonna have to like um, 
push it back a little bit. So they spent about a couple months in Ohio and Illinois and Kansas kind of laying low. Brown actually went back to Kansas. And this is the time uh, before that he had had been always clean shaven. But now because both he's still wanted in Kansas, like he's still a fugitive technically. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he grows like this giant beard. And then he like goes by uh, what was his name? Shubal Shubal Morgan. That's his like uh, his alias. Um, That's why I was surprised when they gave they suspended my license in New Jersey. He's like, "What do you mean? I was wanted in Virginia. This is a different state. <laughs> Cri- cr- you know, these crimes don't go past state yeah, lines. What are you talking about? I crossed into the ter- across territories. Um, <laughs> I made it. I'm in Delaware. <laughs> <laughs> um, when he, it's funny when he gets back to Kansas, though, uh, he talks to like his friends, and they are like, "Yeah, we we're totally cool with the Potawatomi massacre. Now everybody thinks that was a great thing." <laughs> um, but and and it's during this time that in Kansas that um, the 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 attitudes towards slavery start to get more and more uh, uh, violent. Like again, you know, it's been like a guerrilla war happening in Kansas. But at the national level, there are politicians who are basically predicting a civil war. Uh, it was right around this time that Lincoln de- delivers his House Divided speech. Uh, William Seward, who was the leading Republican candidate in 1860, gave a very similar speech uh, about the conflict that was brewing over slavery. So people think that something is about to happen. Um, Brown keeps recruiting people. Uh, Also, he liberates about um, uh, 11 slaves in Missouri and takes them to Canada, which was like a big deal. And then the Secret Six like love that. They sent him a bunch of money after he liberated these slaves. Um, He also puts in an order for a bunch of pikes. Uh, because he, uh, he's he, like, uh, he's on pikes. Why do you want, what do you want pikes? You want 500 pikes? No, I want 900 pikes. Oh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of fucking pikes. What do you, what do you plan on doing these, these pikes over here? Uh, you know, just, uh, you know, pike stuff, you know, <laughs> pike, pike stuff. You, you sure you don't want guns? No, 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 no. Pike, pikes are fine. You want pikes? Like, are you, are you fighting elephants? What do you, what is this? Well, I mean, uh, you know, not everybody knows how to I, use a you gun. Got the, you got the money? You have the money for the pikes? Well, I don't have the money now, but I can give you a little bit of money now. So you want me to start building these pikes? Yeah, I, I want you to build 900 pikes. 900 pikes. 900 pikes. Um, don't ask any questions. Okay. Uh, and I'll give you some money now. He says he wants 900. <laughs> yeah, 900. Pikes, no. <laughs> pikes, Gun. not guns, pikes. I don't know. He says it's not it's not for elephants. It's he's just <laughs> It's for fun. He's just he's got a big pike war coming up. I don't know. <laughs> um but no, he wants <laughs> he wants pikes because he when he when they liberate these slaves, not all of them are gonna know how to use guns, but he believes that humans naturally take to the pike. It's like a long spear with like it's like a pole with like a blade on the end of it. He's saying they naturally take <laughs> to the pike. No. No, I don't. I don't know what that means either. Just, just do it. <laughs> he says he's got half the money. All right. So he 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 pays a guy to build a bunch of pikes for him, um, and he's trying to convince more people to join. But like uh, some of his sons decide to actually join him. Uh, all, his sons Oliver, Owen, and Ot- none of the ones Watson. that have been tortured previously. <laughs> yeah, his, his son John Jr. was like, I would like to, but uh, I have I, nightmares every day. <laughs> I can't sleep at night anymore. 
I still have the sensation of my fingernails being pulled out. I I I, uh, I don't know if I'll ever recover from this. Um, all right, we got it. We got to we got to fucking get to this Harper's Ferry shit. All right, and yeah, go yeah. through that so we can then talk about the real thing, which is the repercussions of what that was that yeah. event. So uh, so he finally he gets his guys together. He gets about uh, nineteen. It's like nineteen dudes. They go down to Harper's Ferry. Uh, uh, John Cook has been living there for a year. Uh, he just had his his son was born at spring. He's got a newborn baby. <laughs> I got baby my boy. son Elijah. I made I'm, I made thirteen pies for this year's bake sale. I, I told them I was only gonna make six because I'm in the fair. I just what had kind of pies. Oh, oh. <laughs> I I done made a. They said you can't make a pie with blueberry, but I I did it. You made pie with blueberries. You can make blueberry pie. Oh, I, I'd love to try some blueberry pie. And then, well, we got pecan, we got pumpkin, we got all your all your staples. Um, but what about all the, what about the information on the, on the arsenal and uh, the local population and, um, uh, the terrain and the slaves? Uh, well, you spent the last year like doing all the things we asked you to do, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Is that is that now? <laughs> <laughs> is that is that what? Oh, you know what? I I got some notes. Uh, why don't you guys eat some of this pie <laughs> that I've been cooking? Um, I'm gonna go check with my wife uh, and my son at my house <laughs> in the neighborhood where I am cherished and loved, and see if I can find where I where I put those notes. Okay, that's great. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so they find they meet with Cook. He, I guess, he did get some information. But I, I think he, <laughs> he, he like the town is the it's the some nice people living got there. Roads. Got roads. <laughs> There's uh, a river. <laughs> the, if you look by the river, that's where most of the the, the features are. <laughs> so that we keep the buildings all close to the river, make it easy for water and stuff. But he, yeah, Cook literally, yeah, he marries the woman. He has a kid. He worked as a teacher. He was a book salesman, and then he was like, uh, when they get there, he was like working on the CNO Canal. But he, he, he did give them a little bit of information. Like he told them, you know, where the major slaveholders are, what's going on. But Brown, they, they rent a farm. Um, there was a guy named Doctor Booth Kennedy, uh, and his, uh, he died. But his widow owned this property, and she rented them uh, the property for uh, one year for thirty five dollars. Um, I don't, I, I think he rented that knowing they were not going to get that security deposit back. Um, <laughs> but he. Uh, but he, they, him and his 20 men, or, or at first it was only a couple of guys, but him uh, and his men, and then his daughter, Anne, and then his uh, son and his wife all move in, and then all the other guys start kind of coming in over the, the next couple of months. And they spend the next couple of months basically preparing for the raid. They're reading about military tactics. They're reading, they're readying their weapons. Um, they're When they're not doing that, they're debating about politics and religion. And one thing is, like, Brown is the most religious of all of these guys and but most of his followers were maybe christian a lot of them were agnostic even his children at this point like kind of like even though they're like following their dad to to harbor's ferry they don't really even believe in god at this point yeah Uh, most of them are agnostic and then like he's like and he's like writing like his constitution 
on mm-hmm. like a, an updated constitution like yeah. just making copies for all the people yeah who, well, well when they when they free the slaves and they escape into the mountains they're gonna form a community yeah. they need they need a constitution he has some pamphlets he's got some pamphlets and then there's Anne there his daughter is yeah. just like dripping with teenage girl diary entries like <laughs> yeah. she is loving it she's like with all of her brothers and her hot brother friends yeah uh, and I mean they're not they're not hot they're dirty tobacco spit people but like that was hot back then they're men with purpose and that was exciting it's just uh they have a cause yeah they're uh i mean yeah she's just and we learn a lot about uh john brown from her because she went on to go like uh, be a professor yeah college and then moved to california she lived yeah i think she she lived a long time yeah she did so she lived a long time and she and even uh, all the children that survived brown were very defended him yeah they believe even though even if they Maybe personally disagreed with Killed some of those. Uh, yeah, but they 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 all believe that you know he was a hero and like a morally righteous guy. Um, but yeah, so they're they're planning the raid. Um, Brown's trying to keep most people kind of ignorant of the plan. He doesn't want to like spoil too much of it. Um, and it's funny because even some of the guys when they get to Harper's Ferry, they don't even realize what exactly the plan is. It's not until they get there that Brown is like, "Okay, we're going to capture the arsenal." And then a lot of these guys are like, "What? <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about?" And so, and um, they a lot of them believe that it would be a mistake because uh, the town again, it's in the middle of these two rivers, and on either side of the rivers are these giant hills. Mm-hmm. And so if you aren't if you're not quick enough or you're not smart enough you're gonna get trapped in the town and you're in a really bad situation yeah you gotta be climbing up yourself foreshadowing Foreshadowing. (laughs) um anyway so they that happens but he uh in august of 1859 frederick Douglass comes to meet him again uh and you want to join us yeah uh what's uh, the plan what what, what are we doing here we're gonna go in uh take this whole entire town with 20 guys and then we'll just uh everyone will join us what are you fucking nuts? <laughs> basically, that's basically what he says. Yeah, and and uh, but uh, Douglas had uh, a freed black servant um, that worked. For him. <laughs> that's a interesting phrase. But uh, he had a uh, a guy who worked for him, and that his name is Shields Green, and he joined Brown. Yeah. Like he was, he was, you know, believe he was like, I'll fight for you. Yeah, I'm going to go with you. So Brown leaves uh, uh, Douglas's servant, and that's the last time Brown and Douglas will see each other. Um, some of the guys were not very. Uh, uh, secretive about the plan, especially Cook. Like he was actually like telling people in the town like something big's about to happen. <laughs> God, you know I don't like to, to to brag or be the center of attention, but it's about to get exciting. Right? <laughs> yeah. What are you talking? And I'm about? not talking about those pies I made. <laughs> what are you, we, we, we were having like a community event or something? Well, the fair is coming up, and I don't want you guys to forget about that. But. That isn't what I'm referring to. I can't Something I can't revolutionary, say, if you get my drift. I can't say much more than this, but uh, your lives are about to change. <laughs> um, and a lot of the other guys were like writing letters to their families. Um, and also, during the same time, so Forbes like spoiled the plans like a year ago. Well, there were three Iowa Quakers that also had talked to Brown when Brown was in Iowa training, and they sent a letter to the Secretary of War, John B. Floyd. And basically, the letter was saying that um, Brown and his group of men are going to attack an armory in Maryland. Yeah. And then Floyd basically ignored the letter because, one, what the fuck are you talking about? There's no armory in Maryland. I write that letter to the president every day. He never write back. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, even though people are aware that something might be happening. He, they also put, like, uh, 
in Harpers Ferry, West or Maryland. Yeah, yeah they called it Harpers Ferry, Maryland. Yeah, and, and he's like, "Well, there's no Harpers Ferry, Maryland. This is a fake, yeah, fake news, fake news." So, anyway, so the, even though people are aware of what's about to happen to some degree, no one really makes uh, an effort to stop it. Now, I think the the one thing I think if there's one thing that Brown makes a mistake on in all of this. I mean, you can say the raid might have been foolhardy. It was not a great plan. But there's one thing I think could have helped make the plan successful. That is... Pikes! (laughs) No, not pikes. (laughs) (laughs) They needed to talk to the local slaves. Yeah. Uh, They make no effort to organize uh, the enslaved people. They're basically just relying on word of mouth. We're going to do this raid, and then the word will... And they were going to liberate some slaves, but they thought that they would just spontaneously, like, rise up. Yeah. And... That does uh, does not happen. But uh, the the one uh, problem they did have was that Harper's Ferry and the area around it was not a huge, densely slave populated. It was only about thirty percent of the population was enslaved black people, yeah. which is not is fairly low. Um, I mean, there are some places in the South where it's like you know almost ninety percent of the population is enslaved yeah, black people. Yeah. Um, so that's a big problem they have. And anyway, so then finally they get uh, one last guy joins them in October. They have 21 guys now. And Brown hoped to have more, but he's like, okay, we can't waste any more time. Uh, And so finally, uh, October 15th, 1859, he announced the revolution will begin the following day. So the next day uh, they get up and they have their meeting, decide who's going to do what. They assign tasks. Uh, Basically, the plan is to go across the uh the bridge uh the Potom- uh, across the Potomac river capture the bridge hold the bridge and then go into the town and then they're going to take the bridge across the shenandoah river hold both of those bridges and then capture all the important buildings in town uh and that's what they do uh it they begin uh, uh the night uh, of october 16th and very quickly uh they capture the bridge the guy who was like guarding the bridge thought it was a joke <laughs> like he was like what you guys playing a game here <laughs> no seriously <laughs> no seriously you're under arrest uh, oh. oh man damn i should have been much more watchful that is my job <laughs> um, never happened Never happened before. Um, they so they capture the bridge, um, and then they seize the armory uh, and the engine house, and then they captured the rifle factory. Uh, there was like an old guy like just defending that, and they just like push him out of the way and get it. Uh, and then uh, they are pretty much like within two hours, they had captured every single building, um, the armory, the rifle works, all of that. They held both bridges, and so they started at 8 p.m. By 10 p.m., they had basically done all they had planned to do in the town, and they had not fired a shot. Um, and so they'll spend the next couple of hours. Uh, they sent um, six men um, to liberate local slaves, and one key part of the plan was they wanted to capture Colonel Lewis Washington, who was the great-great-grandnephew of George Washington, and they were going to capture him, keep him as a hostage, and then use the sword— that he had that belonged to George Washington and a pistol that had belonged to George Washington and symbolically use that to liberate slaves. Nice. Uh, and they do that. They capture his slaves uh, and the sword had been given to him by like Frederick the Great and Marquis de Lafayette gave him the pistol. Um, they went to a bunch of other local farm or plantations, captured slaves, cap- or, uh, freed the slaves, captured the slave owners. Uh, and then they're, they just decided to wait. And they're like, 
he described he the way he described it that the bees would swarm to the hive that was Harper's Ferry, and then they're waiting and waiting, <laughs> uh, and nothing's happening. And bees come. Bee, be, well, some bees come, not the bees that they had hoped for. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and some of the guys are starting to get nervous. They're like, "We're waiting too long. We're, we need to get out now." Yeah. And Brown's like, "No, no, no. They're gonna come. The slaves will come here. We will arm them. We will get out." Uh, more and more time co- goes by. Um, eventually, the uh, the relief watchman goes to the bridge and he's like hey where's the watchman and owen uh, oliver brown is like tries to take him hostage the guy escapes and then informs some of the local people the train comes into town uh on the bono railroad train uh stops in town and they hold the train hostage and And then he lets him go uh well they don't let him go at first uh and the first casualty of the raid was a porter who was working on the train uh who was a freed black man uh who went off his name was Hayward Shepard, and he went to confront what was happening. Uh, when they ordered him to halt, he ran away. They shot him in the back. Oh, not, <laughs> so, not a good look. For no, not guy. not good PR. Uh, if you're gonna, if you're trying to lead a, uh, a a slave rebellion that's going to free all the uh, the black people in the South, maybe you shouldn't shoot a black guy as your first move. Uh, um, so he would die the following day. Um, so not a good look for that. Um, and then they continued to wait, but nothing was happening. And so um, uh, eventually um, a couple of the local people who had heard about what was happening inform um, the president of the Beauto Railroad. He sends a message out to President Buchanan, the Secretary of War, and then uh, they start contacting local, uh, the Maryland and Virginia militias and they basically descend onto the town yep. and the next uh, the following morning people uh, start going to work <laughs> and they're yeah. like well all right going into work to work for the arsenal going to make some rifles oh what's happening here oh the, the they captured the arsenal <laughs> They got all the guns? Well, some of them are just holding pikes. <laughs> What's a pike? Well, it's a long pole with a spear. Why wouldn't you just bring guns? They, there's guns in there. There's guns in there. I uh, didn't pick them up. <laughs> but anyway, so... Um, all so all then start things start to go badly. Um, basically, at that point, they still probably could have escaped at that point. Yeah, it was not too late. But Brown just continues this. There's like a, there's a there's a guy in the in the hotel who's like sniping some dudes. Uh, and that guy's probably but but the resistance is is small at this point. Yeah, they they um they and also the militia were not like very willing to die. They yeah. they did not. Uh, but it's like a bunch of armed civilians and Virginia Maryland militia, and they're shooting at each other. Uh, the mayor of Harper. Ferry was killed in the in the action, um, but then by about noon of that day, it's too late. There's too they, they they lose control of the bridge, and then they lose. That's like their escape route, and then they get trapped um, inside the arsenal. Eventually, like I mean, they're facing like hundreds of militia dudes, and they're only like like 15 people there yeah and eventually uh, a bunch of guys get shot they try to escape um a bunch of uh, some guys are wounded and eventually brown and the his remaining followers hole up in the engine house yeah and they call it's called john brown's fort um most of the guys end up getting shot and wounded or, or mortally wounded Brown tries to negotiate a surrender. Or he tries to negotiate escape. He does. He's like, I'm not going to surrender, but yeah, I will. Yeah, yeah. I will release the hostages if you let me go. Yeah. And they refuse that. They any, any guy who tries to surrender to them, they that shoot. That was bullshit. Yeah, there were several guys that like they sent out with to, like, like white flags, and, and they just like, shoot them. Just shoot them right yeah. away. Uh, and then by 11 p.m. that night, um, uh, U.S. Marines led by Colonel Robert E. Lee. 
uh, uh, arrive in the town. Lee wanted to attack that night, but he waited the next day. He sent his subordinate, Lieutenant Jeb Stewart, uh, to negotiate with Brown, and he's the first person who recognizes Brown, because before that point, they didn't really know what was happening. Yeah. Um, and then he's like, hey, you're you're Osawatomie Brown. I know yeah. you. I was, he, like, Stewart was a cavalry officer in Kansas when Brown was there, so he's like, I know who you are. Um, and Brown is like, I'm not going to surrender uh, unless you let me escape. And so then they, um, they, uh, Robert E. Lee orders like a dozen men to attack the arsenal. They break the barricade. Uh, a couple guys get shot in the action. Most of the, um, defenders are wounded and uh, a few of them are allowed to surrender. Uh, but basically by that point it's over. Um, of the, of the whole raid, there were 22 participants at that point. Ten were dead or dying, five were captured, and then seven of them, seven of them escaped. Uh, and then total casualties uh, for the other side, it was like one Marine died, one was wounded, 11 guys, a militia were wounded, and then <clears throat> six civilians and uh, were killed and nine were wounded. Um, and then it was over. Nice. Nice. And that's the end of John Brown, right? <laughs> so they capture him. They capture him, um, they, and, they, and they and then they basically um, people are pissed. Like they're yeah. so mad, uh, and everyone wants a piece of this because the South is a, has that violence thing, and they're like they want to they want to hang this guy so bad. They, and, and they were and shocked they, by what happened because again were, they they believe that the Northerners were a bunch of pussy ass bitches that yeah. weren't going to do anything, and then all of a sudden they uh, had like an actual like like insurrection on their hands yep. like this guy uh nearly succeeded uh and he shocked all of them uh the governor of virginia governor wise was like embarrassed by it like yeah. he was like the militia were like did not handle the situation well um he's uh this the militia commander they sued him in court because of for like cowardice um <sighs> And as a result, the southern states are going to start to um, basically prepare. Mobilize. Mobilize. Yeah. Um, the Secretary of War, Floyd, he was a Virginian. He starts sending arms uh, to southern arsenals. Yep. It was like over 100,000 arms were shipped after Harbor's Ferry. Um, all the southern states start to uh, reinvigorate their militia programs. And as a result, by the time you get to the Civil War, the south was way more prepared for war than the north was. Yep. Because they were like, we can't let that happen again. Um, so, but the Southern reaction was one of just shock and anger. They want to, they want to hang Brown, uh, in the North, they were also very shocked and they also kind of wanted to disavow Brown because they didn't want, want to be associated Yeah, because the South for this whole time has been saying there's this plot in the North to do this. And they're like, no, there's not. Like, this guy is not acting on behalf of us. Um, and the Southerners are always trying to, like, tie him to, like, this northern conspiracy. Yeah. Um, and, like, tie him, and they try to, like, tie him to Abraham Lincoln and William Seward. Uh, Seward actually probably would have been the Republican nominee in 1860, but people believe that he was associated with Brown and yeah. he became known as too radical because of that. Which, and it, this is so crazy. It's like, it's the, like, they have been acting. Like the the South has is enslaving people. They've been acting violent this whole time. Yeah, and then uh, the North does something in kind. Yeah, uh, which again, like you know, like if you just look at the con- if you take it out of context, this could be a bad thing, an act of terrorism. Yeah, and we can discuss that. But if you take it in in context, it is an. I think it's an act of war against sure. a like a against a warring party. Well, it's like if someone 
if you like insult a person and you just do that continually and like not only insult you're like physically abusing a person and then they decide to hit back exactly and then they're like shocked that you did that and as a result they they try to blame you for like you yeah the punch not only do they blame you but then they will like take uh they'll do their own retribution like there was a a a series of like lynchings that happened in the south both for uh enslaved black people but also anyone who might have been thought of as an abolitionist or like northerners living in the south were lynched as a result of what happened um, and then everyone who was associated with Brown was like terrified. They like, no one wanted anyone who had some connection to him was afraid they were going to get caught. Yeah. And, and when, um, when they, the U S troops found the house that they had been living in, they found a bunch of letters that like connected Brown. To- it would be, it'd be like today. Like if someone went and like killed a bunch of people at a KKK rally, mm-hmm. like, uh, they would have a lot of like, un- like, like no one would want to, like, I want, like, I, like, I wouldn't even like like people wouldn't condone yeah. that violence. Like they would try to separate themselves from that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? No, for sure. And like, and even people who were against slavery did not want to like end slavery through violent means. Or at least the majority of them did not. Uh, but most of the secret six members fled the United States. Either they went to Canada or England. Even like Frederick Douglass, who wasn't even really like a supporter of Brown, but just because he had met Brown and had letters um, that were found, he went to England. Um, The only two that didn't flee were Higginson. He was like the most radical guy. And then Parker, uh, because he was dying from tuberculosis and he was living in Italy. So it didn't really matter. Um, But basically the only people who really defended Brown afterwards were the transcendentalists, um, Thoreau and Emerson in particular. Um, they were the first ones who saw him as a hero, um, and potentially a martyr. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, the and real quick with that too, yeah. after the, after the raid on Harper's Ferry, um, John Brown is captured Yeah. and he, you know, maybe has a couple chances to escape. He doesn't take them because, and like, that's what well, we could, there's a debate about whether John Brown is how much of it is was he just a bad tactician, which I think he was yeah. par- partially, uh, but how or how much was it the foresight knowing that like the greatest impact he could have is becoming a martyr and yeah. a symbol for a cause, and if he hadn't done that, uh, would this would the South had started mobilizing? Would they have attacked attack, have attacked Fort Sumter? Would they have? Uh, proposed succession uh, and maybe they would have probably later though well it the the secession movement i mean had been brewing for like years in for the years. south but it becomes organized after brown mm-hmm. there was a uh, the southern secessionists they referred to as the fire eaters yeah. and they became much more um you know m- much more aggressive and started to organize and at this point they like they have an excuse now they're like there is a plot to end slavery we know it's happening so let's do something about it <laughs> yeah. um but uh so brown is captured they interrogated him um he talked he was disappointed in what happened with the raid and he thought that i mean basically he felt that he that the enslaved people were going to come and that was the only reason why he didn't leave and he was disappointed that that didn't happen um and then he's going to he was charged with uh, a couple of crimes uh, it was uh, the f- and it was funny because i was reading they said a lot of legal scholars say that his trial was kind of a sham because one he was tried by the state of virginia not the federal government and he was charged with treason against the state of virginia even though he never lived in virginia uh, but he was also charged with um uh, inciting a slave insurrection and charged with murder uh, but his trial was um 
not a fair trial by any means. I mean, they were going to convict him no matter what. Yeah. Um, and, and he, he like slept through the trial cause he's still like wounded. Uh, yeah, he, well, and when they, when they captured the engine house, he got like ba- He got wounded by, um, by like he was stabbed by a sword. So, yeah. so he's like kind of wounded. still at that point, he's kind of out of it. Uh, and, but like people like hundred, like 500 people would show up to the trial each day. And they're and, just like eating peanuts and popcorn and shit. Yeah. And just, just throwing like, it on the floor, on the floor. <laughs> they're like munching a bunch of, yeah, it's a it's a fun event. You get to see watch a guy uh, about to get executed. Um, but the trial uh, was when the idea of John Brown as a martyr began, and he was so stoic and he acted like so nobly during yeah. the process that people because um, he was living by him. he was living of without a fear that they were incapable of. That's the whole. Yeah. That's like that. That's the one thing that like you can take from them in that moment is like they're. What you're doing is challenging their way of life and yeah. their culture, and you're saying that they're wrong. And and what they are by refusing that, or like they can't let it go. They can't let. They can't even have the conversation that slavery is wrong is, is wrong, or that their lifestyle is wrong, because then they would have to admit that they're uh, they're afraid. They don't know. Like, yeah. They don't know what like. Uh, and Brian was not afraid. Yeah, yeah, he was. He showed like they were terrified of the uh, the potential, you know, repercussions of what Brown did. Yeah, but Brown was not afraid to die at all. Yeah, and he knew he knew it was coming, and he you know he knew the trial was a sham. Uh, he did not de- deny what he had done, but he showed no feeling of guilt or wrongdoing. He felt totally morally justified in what he did. Yep. Um, and he gave like this speech while he was in court. Um, and, you know, it kind of pissed off all the Southerners, but to the Northerners, you know, it finally showed them that, you know, he's like a righteous hero. Yeah. Cause they, po- they, the, they like published it. Yeah. So they published the speech. Um, the the Harper's Ferry Weekly or whatever was a big paper back then. Oh like, yeah, <laughs> um, but so yeah, the Southern again the Southern papers tried to link him to like this conspiracy. Um, the New York Tribune uh, wrote about the trial and the conviction, um, and they were very negative about Brown. Uh, there were I mean, and even in the North, there were a lot of people still who did not like Brown. There was like a meeting in New York City of like twenty thousand and uh, people who were anti John Brown. It yeah. was like the largest meeting that had ever. Uh, organized meeting that had ever occurred in New York City uh, yeah. at that time period, and they did not like what he was doing. Um, and so, yeah, there, there, there's still a mixed opinion of him. Um, and but eventually, he's convicted on all three crimes, and then he's going to be uh, sentenced to be executed on December second, eighteen fifty nine. Uh, he's still he's in prison for a little bit, and while all that while he's in prison, uh, people are visiting him. He's writing tons of letters, writing tons, like yeah, people correspond with him, and he pretty much everybody he responds to. Yeah. Um, and you know, he's again, he's pretty unrepentant about what he had done, um, but he and he felt like he was morally justified. Um, and so, but eventually, um, he, uh, so December 2nd, he's, uh, going to be executed. Uh, the, probably the, the, the best quote that he has, and he goes, um, I am John, or I am John Brown and now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. I had, na- I, I had, as I now think vainly flattered myself that without very much bloodshed, it might be done. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's basically just predicting the Civil War. You know, yep. he's saying that I, you know, 
there is no peaceful end to this. This is going to end uh, in a bloody mess. Uh, he's taken to they they uh, they built a scaffold in this field, uh, and like on the way there, he's like commenting on like how beautiful the land is. He's like, oh, I never noticed. Uh, it's a nice place to live. I get why John Cook liked this place. <laughs> um, he all this while this is all happening. He again, he's very stoic and he's not showing fear, and everybody's like really impressed by that. Um, it was a very well guarded event in total. There was like over three thousand militia and federal troops that were there, uh, and there was also a few f- um, future. F- um, famous Civil War people that were there, uh, Robert E. Lee, who was part of the suppression of John Brown, he was uh, commanded federal troops there. Um, they also contracted Thomas Jonathan Jack or uh, Thomas Jonathan Jackson, who will later become known as Stonewall Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, he at the time was a VMI professor of artillery, and he had a uh, he and some of his cadets uh, had an artillery battery there. Um, Turner Ashby is another Confederate guy was there, and John Wilkes Booth. Uh, John Wilkes Booth joined one of the uh, militia companies so he could like see the execution. Uh, and he said that he thought Brown was like an evil guy, but he also was very impressed by John John Brown's like righteousness. Uh, so they put a sheet over John, John Brown's Will, head. John Wilkes Booth is such a diva, though. Ah, uh, yeah. He, well, he is. I mean, he's, he's like a, he's he, a theater. He's pansy. an actor. Yeah, he, he's like a total Full theater. He's a he's, he's a dramatic the one, he, guy. He's the one that tells you that like movies aren't good and theater is like the true art yeah 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 no and he thinks you know they're he he thinks he's doing something with theater yeah (laughs) i'm i'm making art yeah exactly. but um anyway so they take him to the scaffold they put a sheet over his head and the noose around his neck his only request was that they be quick uh and they were not uh it (laughs) it takes them 10 minutes for the militia to set up in position (laughs) and he's like (laughs) <laughs> waiting to get killed here guys yeah uh but anyways eventually they uh cut the rope that releases the trap door uh his neck is snapped is it, it snapped i thought no he has his neck snaps his neck snaps uh, some and, of the other guys don't uh yeah some of them don't uh, yeah. you do like if you get hanged you want your neck to snap yes you do you will strangle to death otherwise yeah and that's way um, more uncomfortable it took him about five minutes to die but they they everyone remarked that he convulsed not very much. Like usually, when people get hanged, they they writhe in pain and yeah. they're trying to reach up and their legs are moving around. They said he was very mostly pretty still, uh, and he hung for thirty five minutes before he was cut down and officially declared dead. Um, and then everybody else who was captured also um, was executed. Um, most uh, most of them happened a couple months later. Um, and then a couple guys escape. Um, a few of them. Um, uh, it was like seven of them were able to escape Harper's Ferry. Some of them weren't actually in the ferry. Some of them had been waiting at, at the farmhouse with all the weapons. Some, um, like, some of the pikes. Yeah, some of the pikes. <laughs> uh, and they had like a bunch of other uh, rifles and stuff. And then they escaped, but two of them on the way north got captured. One of them was Cook. Uh, Captain Cook, um, and he was funny because they were going up uh, the ma- going to the mountains, and they were hungry. And he went into like the local community to get food, and he was such a nice guy. Yeah, he and just, I don't see any reason. I've been here for a while, and everyone seems to be pleasant. Who's got some berries that a starving man can eat? I don't. Oh, I smell a nice apple pie that's, that's uh, cooling in the window. My, my, may, may I partake in some of that nice pie that you have? I don't mean to tell secrets but i used to make a pretty mean pie myself where did you make pie well that's neither here nor there <laughs> but between you and me it was there <laughs> oh uh you're under arrest now <laughs> oh uh, silly i'm such a silly billy yeah 
Yeah, uh, <laughs> but Cook, yeah, Cook gets arrested and, and captured. There was another guy who he got blisters on his feet and he couldn't go anymore, and he gets captured. <laughs> they both get hanged, um, and but the rest of them escape. In fact, one of Brown's sons uh, manages to get away, um, and uh, and I think it was in total it was five of them. Uh, and then in the aftermath. Um, Brown becomes a martyr, uh, especially because of the the writings of Thoreau and the other transcendentalists. They, you know, lionize him. Um, the Haitians, um, who, again, he had taken a lot of his inspiration for the Haitian Revolution, they mourned his death, and they put a portrait of him up in their Senate um, after he died. Crazy. Um, Mad street cred. Yeah. Victor Hugo, uh, he wrote that the more one loves and admires and reveres the Republic, the more heartsick one feels at such a catastrophe. And he was astounded that the the horror of Brown's execution occurred not in Turkey, but in America. Why not Turkey? Why Turkey? Because Turkey is mean. They execute oh. people there. Oh, trying throwback. Throwback. Ottoman is history. Uh, uh, yeah, the, um, yeah. The Southerners they start to mobilize uh, for civil war. None of the secret six members were ever convicted of a crime. Um, a couple of them testified in court, um, and they were uh, one guy, uh, Sanborn, refused to testify, and he was arrested. Um, but a judge in Massachusetts d- dismissed the case. Yeah. He became a hero. Um, I mean, it's like the like the South is like you know someone accidentally is accused of you know beating and murdering one of their slaves. Yeah. Like they kind of just like wipe that like look the other way yeah so the north is is uh, doing a little bit of that here sure. again we're still trying to be the the better people the, yeah but um and then john brown as the years go on he becomes a uh, part of pop culture uh, there are a ton of uh songs and books and poems and plays that were written about him there was like a period where there was like a ton of you know works being written about him um a, uh, the most famous song about him was called john brown's body um and it was a very popular civil war marching song and it was um it was a tune that had come um from like the methodists it was like a methodist song and then they took the the melody and then the 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 lyric is john brown's body lies a moldering in a grave uh and they say that you say that three times and then but his his soul keeps marching on and the original song was not about john brown the guy we we're talking about it was about a lazy guy in this massachusetts regiment and he was so lazy <sighs> that they said he was like a dead guy um and so they started singing this but all these other regiments were like oh you must be talking about like the the famous john brown that literally everybody in america knows about <laughs> so it became like the most popular we got a lot of lazy guys in our <laughs> we, got, like, we got john brown we got jim smith all of them are lazy but it became this really popular civil war marching song um and then variations of the song um started popping up and probably the most famous one was battle hymn of the republic uh which was written by uh julia ward howe uh, if you remember howe uh he was uh Samuel G. Howe is one of the Secret Six members who backed oh, okay. Brown. His wife writes this poem, uh, and I won't write read the whole thing, but the, the first uh, verse is, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. So she kind of uh, much a much more poetic uh, and also really kind of <laughs> captures like the uh, like the uh, Old Testament kind of violent uh, yeah. nature of John Brown and what yeah. he was doing. Um, and then um, l- uh, basically uh, the year after Brown is executed, um, 
the first southern state will secede from the Union, South Carolina, in December of 1860, uh, and eventually 10 more southern states will secede. Uh, and then the Civil War will begin, and 750,000 men will die uh, in the conflict to end slavery. And like that's how crazy, like even when we're at war, even when the North was at war with the South, like uh, like they were st- like the the war still wasn't about slavery. It still well, yeah. wasn't about freeing the it slaves. It starts as a a suppression of the Southern Rebellion and trying to preserve the Union. Yeah, and Li- Lincoln, which is a good good thing to do. Lincoln, when he was nominated for uh, for the the Republicans in eighteen sixty, he was nominated because he was a moderate. Yeah. He was not a he was anti slavery, but he was not an abolitionist. And yeah. in fact, he was uh, one of the guys who believed that uh, they should repatriate uh, slaves to Africa or the Caribbean, like yeah. the whites and blacks couldn't live together. Um, but he eventually, um, partially at the urging of a lot of the abolitionists, yeah. uh, guys like Wendell Phillips and uh, some of the Secret Six members, Frederick, um, Douglas, Frederick Douglass, especially, um, he. Really realizes okay we can't this is not we can't go back to normalcy anymore like this is not we can't go back to the way it was in 1860 we have to abolish slavery to end this war um and many of the the guys uh who had worked with brown like higginson he leads the first black regiment uh all black regiment uh for the union in the civil war badass Stearns uh helped recruit black regiments um one of the uh guy named osborne perry who was one of the guys who escaped harbors ferry he was a free black guy uh he also recruited black member uh, black people to join the u.s colored troops in the Civil War. Um, the other, one of the other guys who escaped, uh, Francis Merriam. He was also uh, he was a captain in a black regiment during the Civil War. Uh, so like a lot of these guys who had worked with Brown will directly you know fight in the Civil War. In fact, only two of the members who escaped Harper's Ferry survived the Civil War. Two, uh, three of them died during the war. It was only his son. Um, I think it was Owen who survives, um, and then uh, Osborne Perry, the black guy. But everyone uh, so. You know, the guys who are all around Brown do participate in the emancipation uh, process during the Civil War. And he inspired a lot of people who fought in that war. Um, And it probably would not have become a war of liberation. I mean, Civil War might not have started if it wasn't for Brown. I think if you read anything about Brown, like uh, we read a couple of books, and the subtitle for both of those books is, uh, you know, John Brown... Uh, how he uh, did John or like John Brown the did he spark the Civil War like mm-hmm. that that's a common theme uh, and it's it's you know it, I think it's obvious that he does you know without John Brown you know maybe the Civil War starts in some way maybe it doesn't probably does not start in 1861 maybe it gets delayed a few years yep. but the Brown and the Harper's Ferry raid just uh, was the catalyst for everything that's going to happen in the next year or so afterwards. And you don't get that uh, violent bloodshed uh, that is those four years of the Civil War without John Brown, I don't think. Okay. Um, so let's like wrap up just like some, what did we learn like from this besides like the, the details and the facts of this? Like what did you, did you conceptualize anything from learning about this? Well, I, I think the, the, the one thing I took away from this um I think John Brown is so interesting um, because he he was a failure in everything he did. 
and, and you can you can relate to that. I can relate to that. You know, he is he's a loser. Like he he fails in business. He's like kind of a shitty dad and a shitty husband. Um, and even the one thing he's famous for, he failed at. He's a big failure. He is a huge failure. Uh, but it is his failure um, that leads to his martyrdom, and that is like a a greater it leads to the greater good. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it, it means that you never never give up on your dreams, guys. Doesn't matter how many times you fail, you can always do something. <laughs> important uh even in failure you can do something important unless you're doing stand-up unless you're doing stand-up then you go 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 ahead and quit (laughs) (laughs) you're just wasting your time um but also i mean um i I think he it come it brings up the question you know is john brown a terrorist and is terrorism justified like can you it, it, it it's a hard question to grapple Very, with, uh, um, and it's hard to compare. Trigger word it is a trigger word. It, I mean, you know, war on terror, you know, you know, all that stuff. I mean, but it, it's hard to compare John Brown to modern terrorists because one, John Brown, he was not technically trying to harm civilians. Like some civilians do get killed in the raid. That was not really his intention. It was not like he was trying to bomb a bunch of civilians to send a message. Uh-huh. Like, he did have, like, a plan. It was not just, like, uh, we're going to kill a bunch of people and suicide bomb each, uh, ourselves. Uh-huh. Uh, we have a plan, uh, a greater plan than that. But um, he, he does commit multiple terrorist acts. I think Harper's I mean, Ferry I think, I, and I, in Kansas. I think if, like... Um uh, I mean, but let's let's say you have like a terrorist group like Al Qaeda um, attacked, uh, or um, let's say ISIS. Use ISIS. That's a, They're uh, more relevant. More irrelevant. Um, let's say they attacked a U.S. military base. That would be considered a terrorist attack, right? Not yeah. an act of war. Sure. Uh, per se. That's true. Be so. So I mean, even if they were attacking just military people and assets. Uh, they're normally, attacking, our, they're but, attacking our troops, but they're not. But they're not under a, a, a sovereign nation. They're yeah. not under. A, they're not a flat. Uh, yeah, they are organized, but yeah, they are not a. Yeah, they are not a country. They are a uh-huh. terrorist group. Um, but no, I mean, I think that's the. That's why John Brown is so, such a complicated person because you know he is such a morally upright person. Um, but he and and you can say his cause is is I think is valid. You know, yeah. slavery probably is. Slave, slavery and you know genocide of Native Americans probably are the two greatest evils like in American history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if if you are going to lead or commit some sort of terrorist act, I think I, I think it is he is a little justified in that. Yeah. Um, and well, like if but and then also like it's 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 kind of enlightening to think about the other side. Like if let's say we had lost the Civil War, um, uh, we did lose the war. Well, we did lose this. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm from Virginia, so <laughs> yeah, I, I was raised in I was raised in the North. Uh, so you lost this civil war. I lost. We won, um, but uh, had you won, <laughs> Joe Barton, uh, the like history would have been probably written differently. Oh, about sure. Joe Barton, Joe John Brown. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, even in the South today, he's still a fairly controversial figure. He's not like like Lincoln. You know, Lincoln has. His reputation in the South is not nearly as bad as it used to be, but I don't think Brown will ever become like to. I mean, to who those who know him, like I think most people today do think of him as a hero or a martyr. But for people in the South, that I don't know if that'll ever be the case uh, because he. I mean, he he's just a murderer. That's like in the South, he was described as a traitor or a murderer or an insane person. And that's also a kind of a debate about whether or not John Brown actually was insane. There's bad people insane. on both sides, Joe Brown. 
<laughs> um, well, I mean, growing up, like I, I mean, I did not think he was a good guy. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I will say, I will mention, I was a very pro Confederate. Like growing up, I was very obsessed with the Civil War. Canceled, Joe I, I am canceled. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I have since become enlightened. But um, no, I mean, he's not. Uh, I think I'm he, Simon Lighter, not enlightened. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but he, you know, he he is. I think he's probably the most polarizing figure in American history. Yeah. Like you, I mean, I think there may be. Well, why a couple is Nat Turner examples. not? Uh, Nat Turner is uh, less because he's a slave. He's a slave. And I think that's the unique thing about Brown is that he is not an enslaved person. And and for um, Brown's legacy was really. Um, what, what, what do you think people like? What is like a what did a Southerner think of Nat Turner? Oh, well, I mean, they, uh, I think it, Southerners, I mean, felt that, you know, he, I mean, they, they, they executed him. I mean, he, yeah. they believed that he was a threat. In fact, after Nat Turner, there's a huge, um, militias in the South grew after 1839 because of, as a response to Nat Turner. But they thought, I think they saw him, you know, not, I think Brown was more evil because he's a white man. Mm-hmm. He is not a, an enslaved person. He is a white man who's turning against white people. Yeah. Um, and that's what makes Brown unique. And even for black people, uh, especially in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Brown was the most, uh, you could argue more important than like Frederick Douglass was. Like, uh, he was in some circles more revered because he was a white guy who, I mean, Douglas didn't join the raid. Douglas had the choice to do that and he decided not to, whereas Brown sacrificed himself and, uh, Brown's reputation, you know, kind of went up and down after the civil war, like, especially in the 1880s and 1890s, he was not a very popular figure, uh, but it was, you know, black historians and, um, and the black community that really kept him. Uh, kind of you know, kept talking about him as a hero. You know, mm-hmm. he's not uh, the villain that white people make him out to be. Um, and I, I think, and especially uh, what's his name, W. B. Du Bois. He wrote he wrote a biography of Brown in like the 1930s or 20s, uh, and really revived Brown's reputation. Um, but I mean, it's, <laughs> but it's but it's what if I would love I would I would love to hang out with that guy because then it'd be like. Hey, hey, my girlfriend would be like, hey, babe, what are you doing tonight? I'm uh, drinking with the boys. <laughs> Saturdays for the boys. Pop a cold one with the boys. Hell yeah. All right. Um, is there anything you else else you have to say on this, Rob? Uh, no. No, I think I, I uh, this was a good one, though. I liked it. Uh, I just didn't know. Like, I didn't, um, yeah, I thought, uh, I didn't realize, like, how morally ambiguous this time period was. Like, I knew, like, uh, I knew there was like abolitionists, but I didn't really understand what that meant. Like, like, polit- like that it was more of a political thing. It was more yeah. of a self-preservation thing. Well, even like the word at like a lot of them wouldn't have called themselves abolitionists yeah. because that was like as like abolitionists. Those are the pussies. Yeah, like, we ain't we ain't no abolitionists. I, I, I'm anti-slavery, but I'm not an abolitionist. Yeah, uh, they were like the the crazy radical guys, uh, libtards. Uh, they were, the, yeah. <laughs> I mean, even but there was a guy like in the 1860 election, um, like William Seward was described as too radical, even though going into the 1860 Republican convention, he was like the front runner for the nominee. Um, and then there was another guy named Samuel uh, Salmon P. Chase, and they were like, if. He wanted to be president as well, but they're like, if Seward can't be be president, you can't be president either because you're even more radical than he is. So yeah. like the abolitionists were thought of as like not mainstream enough to be able to like lead the country, whereas Lincoln, who was much more moderate, was. Um, but Lincoln mo- tried to like disavow Brown. He was not like a Brown fan. 
Sure. Um, and he even believed that like emancipation early on in the war would be like John Brown's raid on a gigantic scale. Yeah. And he would in, in the first year or so he was not willing to commit to that. Eventually he kind of comes around to it. But well, one of my big take like takeaways from this is like if I was if I had lived back then, where where would I stand? And I think I think most likely I would have stand I would have been. Um, just, I mean, one, your geographical place is going to, is going to de- determine a lot. That's like mm-hmm. your community. You like, you know, yes, there are people who like become en- enlightened besides their community or like see that, uh, you know, see it all as, as what it really is. See the truth behind all the fear and power and pride and ego and all that stuff. But I think most likely you're going to be a product of your environment. Oh, for so, sure. I mean, like I, I mean, again, I, I grew up in the South. My family's all from Virginia, North Carolina. Interestingly, none of them are slave owners, but all of them fought for the Confederacy. Sure. So we're just like the poor white losers who, uh, fought against our own interests but i'm 100 percent like i would have probably yeah. been on that side like, well i would have been in uh, in italy eating spaghetti or something but, uh, <laughs> but like yeah well but, i mean uh, what's his name uh giuseppe garibaldi hey, what do you have, man? garibaldi came over to the united states uh first thing i do guys and he tried to recruit like an all italian brigade to fight in the civil war but he wouldn't he, they wouldn't give him like a high enough officer <laughs> commission so garibaldi wouldn't fight <laughs> okay, the, the, the first thing you need to do to make this uh mission successful is you gotta make me a colonel okay <laughs> <laughs> i need some fucking brass on these shoulders all right the second thing i'm gonna need is a lot a lot of pikes you guys have any pikes laying around <laughs> people uh, people talk about the gun a lot people laugh people love the gun people love the bullets the the range but uh there's, there's something actually, about a good uh, something about the holding of a good pike they actually use pikes in the civil war oh they of course they the, do. I the, mean, you just can't deny the versatility of it. Robert E. Lee uh, had uh, rec- uh, he. You could throw a pike. <laughs> you can throw a pike. He helped raise a pike regiment they need, for they the need south. Another pike, though. You need a lot of pikes. Damn. You can't have just one pike. Everybody's got to have a pike. Uh, I also read a book of recently about the New Mexico campaign during the Civil War, and they had like Lancer regiments. So it's like you know cavalry troops carrying. Whoa, pikes. whoa, whoa! I don't, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't. I'm not a. a I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't uh, talk. I don't speak. I don't for, speak so good. I don't. I don't uh, speak for the lance of people. That is not my uh, expertise. I'm a pipe, I'm a guy. pipe guy, uh, <laughs> and I am here to, uh, you know, I'm here to make spaghetti and uh, become a colonel. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think of the Civil War. I think they they always complain about the food because they were given like really bad meat and like shitty bread. But I think they would have been happier if they'd been given hey. some spaghetti and meatballs <laughs> every day. All right. Well, I think we've said about all that we're going to say on this podcast. All right. Thank uh, you, Joe Barton. Thank you, Rob Rigo. And this has been Ifgumi. Ifgumi History. History.